Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Happy Sunday night. I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Got a packed Monday show for you, Sunday show, whenever you're listening to this. A little different than usual, if you listen to the Friday podcast, Weldon is in Las Vegas this weekend. He, uh, I'm recording this while watching Raiders Chiefs, and he is actually at the game. But uh, he's catching a flight back Monday. I will probably talk to Weldon sometime Monday afternoon, Monday night, and just post probably a bonus podcast for the people. Um, just want to get his thoughts on the game and everything, and we'll try to spin it a little bit forward. Um, but So we'll have that one up. But today we have Nick Suss of the Clarion Ledger. And then my old ba- uh, baseball podcast cohort, Colin Brister on. So I talked to each one of them for probably 45 minutes or so, just about the game, the atmosphere, everything that happened as Ole Miss gets a gigantic 29-19 win in Oxford. I flew back for the game from the DFW area. I had a great time. Enjoyed seeing some folks and uh, enjoyed hanging out with some family as well and enjoyed the game. It was a lot of fun. So anyway, I think you'll enjoy both of these conversations I tried to make a, a different, like, so we didn't talk about the same thing twice. So I talked to Suss more about a lot of the in-game stuff, what he's been seeing from the defense, offense in the red zone, and, and things a little more technical. And then I got Colin on just as someone who's followed Ole Miss sports for a long time and talked more big picture stuff, the Lane Kiffin era, how it differs than some some other coaching eras at Ole Miss, and uh, kind of what what this season means in context if Ole Miss is able to finish these uh, finish these last two games off. So I think you'll enjoy both conversations. I tried to make them as different as possible. Of course, there was some overlap talking about the atmosphere and some other stuff. But uh, buckle up. We got a packed Sunday show. And then if that's not enough for you, we will have a bonus show on Monday night with Weldon. But before we get to Nick Suss first, I want to remind you, podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the handicapping industry. Don't have the final numbers on the weekend yet, but I saw Skybox was four and two in the noon slate in the NFL today. Uh, our guys, Skybox, say no one's hotter than the NFL than them right now. That would be hard to argue with at this point, you are missing out on a money train, particularly in the NFL. If you're not using Skybox, they're going to have a picks package to fit your price range, whether that's month long, week, all season. You can do it all sports, sports specific. They're going to have something that fits your price range. I'd recommend going with the year long all sports pass. It's going to pay for itself and then some. But if you're looking for something, uh, you know, a little bit more affordable or something that's going to fit your wheelhouse, I promise you they're going to have a package that suits you. You need to go check these guys out. You need to use Skybox because you don't want the man texting you on Sunday nights, Monday mornings. You've already got the scaries. You want to be texting him, asking him where your supplemental income is, uh, when that when that is going to hit the Venmo or the Cash App. Skybox is going to help you do that more consistently than your own brain. I can promise you that. They, these guys have a proven model that is proven to work over a multi-year period. These guys are professionals. Check them out skyboxsportspicks.com podcast also brought to you by lb's university avenue across from kroger go see greg rippy right special right now if you subscribe to rippyrights.substack.com get a newsletter for me three to five times a week and discounted meats you get a 20 uh 16 ounce prime strip for 20 bucks and a five dollar pack of sausage by just showing him proof of subscription you need to go check him out then go see all the other stuff he has at lb's awesome sausages crab stuff mushrooms 
seafood, lane train special, bacon wrap filet. Oxford is so lucky to have LB's. It's the best meat market in the world. Greg wants to make your grilling experience good. You need to go check him out. Don't go to Kroger. Go to LB's. Greg has better stuff. Check him out. LB's, University Avenue, across from Kroger. All right, here's Nick Suss on a picturesque day in Oxford uh, from really just in all angles from the overall program standpoint. All right, the first pinch hitter for Weldon Rodenberg is my good pal Nick Suss, Clarion Ledger beat writer. Uh, Ole Miss beat writer for the Clarion Ledger, I should say. You were at the game last night in the press conference. Um, what it was, I mean, the day went about as well as it possibly could with Ole Miss from the scene and everything. Lane anointing himself as the guest picker. People tend to make a habit of doing that around here from the chance they're down of just, uh, you know, pointing themselves to things. What, uh, I guess we're just our big picture. What did you think of the entire day yesterday? It just felt like a, I mean, the game day's become kind of an, basically three, four hour infomercial for said school. And then you can, you can parlay that into a win. Obviously it just turns even better. That seemed exactly what it was for Ole Miss yesterday. Yeah. I think I, I was on campus so long yesterday that if I, I was almost speeding, I think 18 hours. So just walking one mile, I would have broken the speed limits there, but I don't know, man, the college game day. It's a, it's what it is. It wasn't what it was in 2014. I, I mean, anyone who thought it was going to be, the most iconic show ever it, it wasn't that and lane did a good job and they put on a good show and everybody showed up and it was great but the the real fireworks didn't happen until the game started and, and from there i mean they kind of proved they're a different team than we thought they were and i think i made this joke on your podcast before where you could have shown me 11 straight shutouts from this defense and in game 12 i still would have expected them to give up 40 now I'm starting to change my tune. I mean, it's just like the defense looks like it's a good defense. I mean, I think we kind of have to start saying that. And the offense looks like it's a really good offense for 90 yards of the field. And then for 10 yards, their brains stop working. So I, I don't know. I, I think this is a pretty good team. I think in a normal year, it's probably not a top 10 team. I think the top 10 is kind of soft this year, but it's a, it's a good team. It's the third or fourth best team in the SEC, and that's way more than you should be asking for year two under a new coach. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And other thing I was thinking about just from, like, the aesthetics and not the actual game itself was the – you know, Lane's been big on the atmosphere and kind of getting people to go to games. That's something he's commented on throughout the year. What did you think last night? So I was at the game, obviously. I, I think I mentioned that on the Friday show. Uh, I was sitting in the – south end zone so I had a pretty good view of the entire place um I thought it, it was pretty good atmosphere it the stadium wasn't completely full but honestly other than like a section which would be directly to the left of where you sit like that left corner next to the student section and a couple others it looked mostly full and the ones that weren't it was the A&M section that hadn't filled up just what did you think of the atmosphere one of the things I've noticed coming back for two games now too on top of that is you were here during the Luke era. The game seemed to flow better in terms of what they have in between like stoppages and play, which there's a gajillion in college football. That's a conversation for another day. But it just feels like more of a uh, tightly run, well-run production than it did at times at the Matt Luke era. I'm curious what you thought of the atmosphere yesterday, if you've noticed the same thing since Kiffin's gotten here. Yeah, that's actually a product of COVID as much as anything. And that last year they were really able to cut down on commercial break ceremonies which 
I think last night might be the longest commercial breaks I've ever covered at a game. There were three minute and 30 second commercial breaks there for ESPN 6 p.m. kickoff, which is wild. I think it's 245 for the CBS games even. So those were some long breaks. But the atmosphere itself, I mean, what was it at kickoff? Like 36 degrees? It was chilly. It was not warm. Yeah, right around 35, I think. And for the stadium to be at least 90% full at kickoff. And I think even by the fourth quarter, when things were getting weird, it was still probably 80% full. People did a good job of sticking around. I don't think it was the best environment I've seen this year. I still think the LSU game, because it was in the middle of the day and the Eli Manning thing and all of that was still a bigger environment. But I do think this was probably the loudest I've heard it. Were you at the LSU game? I was not. I was on the. Uh, I was watching that one actually on my couch at home. But even on television, you could tell that environment was certainly different. Like I, 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 I wasn't even there, but I fully agree. That one seemed pretty electric and tough to beat. Because even from a crowd perspective, there's a lot of people in Oxford this weekend. My dad's been going to these games for years, and he and a couple other people who've gone to a lot of these things throughout the last two decades were saying that LSU weekend, just the amount of people in the town yeah. in general, was you know top four, top five they'd ever seen. Yeah, like the disappointing thing about yesterday is when I left game day, so that must have been like 11.15, 11.20 when I was done uh, there, I started walking through the Grove to a tailgate I usually hang out at, and there were still a lot of tents that weren't unpacked yet. Like, if you're supposed to get there at 7 a.m. for game day, and I know that's untenable for a lot of people, and I'm not going to blame anyone who didn't go to game day, but I mean, the Grove was still probably only two-thirds full when game day ended. If they did a wide shot of the Grove at the beginning of game day at 7 a.m., it would have been the bullpen, which was full, and you give all the students credit for filling that up, and then just a couple of people straggling the setup. It's not like you imagine of, oh, it's full from the beginning. It was full by Walk of Champions, and that's great, but it wasn't a 14, 15-hour day type thing. No, right. I think uh, <laughs> I had, uh, like, even when I was a student and going out to games as a kid, we never did like the all day tailgating thing because that's a lot. Well, that's a lot of time outside. That's a lot of time, uh, you know, trying to finish off your cooler, if, if you want to call it that. Like the three hour mark, I think, is when it starts to get busy in the group. Yeah. I think that's what a, a lot of people, that's kind of their max and what they can, uh, what they can uh, stomach. I know that's the case. A lot of people like the tailgate that we would go to. But the game itself, I derailed you a minute ago just because I wanted to ask a couple of things about the atmosphere. But you're dead on with talking about how, you know, beginning of the year, if this defense had, you know, shut out a couple of games in a row, I'm not sure I necessarily would have expected them to continue to do that. But you're right. It's, the thinking has changed with this defense in terms of what I think you expect of them on a week-by-week basis. The thing that shocked me last night, so I went into this game thinking AM's going to run the ball. I think they're going to run it for – anywhere between 190 and 230 yards. I just thought it would be key how Ole Miss fared down, you know, inside the 30 or in whatever you want to call it, the red zone itself or just kind of just outside of that as well. And that would be the difference in the game. I think the most shocking part about this defense last night was how they dominated the line of scrimmage on the defensive side of the ball. They really kind of kicked AM's ass from a running game standpoint. I think AM ended up finished with 141 yards on 29 rushes and I'd be curious to add up how much of that came on the last two drives when the game wasn't necessarily completely in consequence I would bet it's around the 115 110 yard mark I know they weren't running it a ton from behind but there were a couple of runs in there yeah. but point being was that 
that was the most thing that stuck out the most is the biggest surprise last night was Ole Miss really controlled the line of scrimmage on the defensive side. Now the offensive line for Ole Miss, different story, but defense, they really kind of got after A&M's offensive line. And some of that was probably a product of them starting three freshmen who had never really played in a true road game with respect to uh, Columbia, Missouri, but credit to Ole Miss. I think, I don't know. What do you think about the defensive line? It seems like the rotation is actually a real rotation now. That when yeah. they go to Eiton and Gordon and now a healthy, Tav- healthy Tavius Robinson, there's not that much of a drop-off. And I think having Williams and those other guys fresher and not having to play as many snaps has helped the time. I mean, building on that, let me just put it this way. If I told you last Monday that Ole Miss wasn't going to have a sack until the last possession of the game <laughs> and wasn't going to force a turnover until midway through the fourth quarter, and just played its best defensive game of the year, you wouldn't figure out how it happened. And like, you guys can go back and watch the press conference and watch me sputter my way through my question to Lane about how that happened. Cause I'm sitting there. I'm like, you guys didn't have a sack. You didn't have turnovers until the end. What made the defense so good? Because it seemed, well, just, just what made the defense work? I, I, I to this day, I, I, to, a day later, I'm trying to figure it out. It's like, they weren't giving up big plays, which obviously was the, Achilles heel for years and years but that hasn't been too much of a problem this year it just seemed like and the thing Lane said which makes sense is AM's game plan was so conservative and so plotting and slow it let Ole Miss get set and when you give this time this defense time to breathe it seems like it can do stuff and I don't know maybe if AM ran tempo or if Jimbo wasn't afraid to go for it on fourth and inches we'd be talking about a different outcome right now but the way AM played really suited this defense. And we got to see guys, that was the best game Ashanti Sistrunks ever played by far. I thought uh, that was the best game I'd ever seen Dean Leonard play. He looked really good. I liked what I saw from Keydron Smith playing safety after, uh, after Jake Springer went out. There were a lot of guys who just have been there this year, but looked really good. And, and then to your point with guys like Ait and Jamon Gordon, Katie Hill, Tavius Robinson, and then obviously the two good edge rushers and Williams and Johnson, they were, they were getting pressure without bringing down the quarterback. And when you do all those things, well, it's a, it's a good recipe for success. Yeah, you're exactly right. And what was interesting to me, you're talking about like, how do you, if, if you just saw the stats and you, you said, you know, they don't, they're not going to get a turnover to the last possession or last two possessions of the game, whatever. Um, you know, they only had, I think two, three and outs, but it was a lot of five play 17 yard drops, you know, six play 22 yard drops. You mentioned that they didn't give up the big play, which hadn't even necessarily been an issue this year. The one thing that stuck out to me when you're sitting there, I I watched the game again this morning, or I say this morning after a nap from the fight back about 30 minutes before we got on and started recording. It was to me, the discernible thing that stuck out was one in A&M's game plan ties into this, but Ole Miss, they lost some battles on first down, but they won first down a lot. And that came to having – that came, had a lot to do with stopping the run. The A&M had a lot of second and nines. Or Ole Miss had a – I don't know how many negative yardage plays they had or tackles for loss in the running game, but there was a lot of second and 12, second and seven, second and eight, as opposed to A&M getting seven yards on the first play and getting that three, four times in a row somewhere in there and really getting in rhythm. I thought them winning first down and making Calzada have to throw the ball – um, you know, on second and third down was a big game changer in this. And we can talk about that aspect of it. As good as this Ole Miss defense was as well, Zach Calzada stunk. He was he was hitting, I thought, some of the intermediate throws early in the game or shorter ones. And I was like, okay, he seems healthy enough with the shoulder deal. He seems fine. But as the game wore on, 
he he to me he wasn't very good. One of the one of the one that stuck out was I can't remember if it was the first or the second quarter, but it was a pretty crucial third down on in plus territory when Ole Miss was still kind of building its lead. And Ole Miss only brought like three or four, and Sam Williams got up close to him. And as soon as Williams got close to him, he completely bailed on the play and like yeah. threw it away and threw it out of bounds. I thought his pocket presence was pretty bad, but that's partially also partially a product of Ole Miss getting consistent pressure without blitzing. So you have to, I guess it's a two way street. You have to give them some credit for rattling him a bit. Yeah. I, I think that the big takeaway right now about this Ole Miss defense is something after the Arkansas game happened and whether it was Jake Springer coming back or whether it was you buy the narrative of these guys really did take it personally. Now this defense looks like a defense that thinks it can get stops there was never a point where I looked down at the field during that Arkansas game and thought I saw a defense that had any confidence in its ability to get off the field. Now they're playing like a team that should get off the field. And I don't necessarily buy into the whole idea that confidence is the thing that matters or any of that stuff. I, I do think that having good players and a good scheme is the best way to win games, but I just keep going back to last year against Arkansas when Corral threw those six picks and Lane refused to change anything. And then it got better. It seems like the defense is going through its version of that, where Lane and Durkin and Partridge, thick and thin, stuck to the plan, and the guys bought into it, and it got better. Yeah, you're exactly right. A lot of it's the Springer part, though, right? He That was, that was the, one of the more fascinating storylines of this year. Weldon and I now have a running joke on this Sunday show because I think we were talking about the three, two, six after the Arkansas game. I think the title of the podcast was can the three, two, six work. And we were talking about Jake Springer not being out there. And I think Weldon had a line that was like, well, he's not Earl Thomas. So like, he can't be making that much of a difference. And like, he's right in that sense, but he, he is a clearly a gigantic difference maker for this defense. And they've like, as you mentioned, it's a combination of a lot of things, but I think that's been one of the biggest is getting him back. It was weird though, because you're around the program every day. You're, whatever they allow y'all to go do with practice and all that. We hadn't seen much of him at all. All we had was a one game sample size. And then that was it. And so it's not that it, his absence was quote unquote underestimated from our vantage point. We didn't have much to estimate it off of, but it's clearly made a gigantic difference because it's put Otis Reese back in a more natural position. And that guy's just kind of a hellion around the line of scrimmage yeah. Springer, uh, not Reese, yeah. Reese is well, pretty good for the most part around there, but he just, I don't know. Weldon described it from like a, a talent or a development or analysis standpoint. Um, he just got really good instincts. He doesn't do anything overly great. He's just always around the ball and he's very quick at the line of scrimmage. I think that's probably been the biggest thing. Would you agree with that? Kind of. And it, to go off of that, uh, my hottest take about this team is that the guy on this team who's going to be a pro for the longest is AJ Finley. And just like what you're talking about with Reese getting to play more naturally, Finley has been so much better since Springer got back. Both of them can kind of do less and addition by subtraction, not having to follow much of a responsibility. They get to play free. I mean, I think in the last two games, Springer has what, or Finley has what, 22 tackles and three picks or something like that. I mean, he has been absolutely everywhere. And I spent this entire summer telling people that Ole Miss arguably could have the best safety group in the SEC. We waited a long time for those words to not look foolish. But now when all three of them are on the field together, this team's not getting beaten over the top. Springer is playing up around the line of scrimmage as well as any safety in this conference, not named Jalen Catalan. 
and Finley's kind of putting a cap on everything. It, it's it's been really impressive. It's a couple. It's it's that, and so Finley's the definitely the headliner. But that group of dudes that had to play back there as freshmen in 2019 are starting to grow up and come into their own a little bit. DeAndre yeah. Prince is another one that comes up. Uh, Keydron Smith. I don't think he was a freshman in 19, if I'm not mistaken, but he was still younger. Um, I'm sure I'm, I'm missing someone off of that, but it's a couple of those guys. And when you get, you know, a couple of those guys kind of, you know, coming into their own and making an impact in what they've been able to do in the transfer portal with this defense, you end up with, even if when you have a depth issue in some spots, a pretty good defense. Um, the one so, you're missing, by the way, is Jay Stanley, who I'm pretty sure had a pick six for Southern Miss last week, if you yeah. want to read fun fact. <laughs> I hadn't heard that name in a long, long time. Um, I wonder what happened to that guy. So you're right, though. The last thing on kind of the defense where we get to a couple spots and how the actual like game itself went, the, there was you talk about looking down and during the Arkansas game and not seeing a defense that thought it could get stops. They were playing with kind of an edge and an attitude last night. Uh, sometimes, a couple of times, it bordered on potentially a, a late hit or two. I was going back and watching it this morning. Um, I mean, they were definitely playing to the whistle. I'll put it that way. And I don't even mean that in a bad way. Like they just they seem to have a different attitude and a different confidence. Like you're talking about. You said earlier, you know, confidence isn't everything. It's not just as simple as you just get confidence. All of a sudden you're a better defense, but with all those other things falling into place, once you start seeing success, you can tell in confidence in the body language. And I thought that was, I mean, Sam Williams was like walking around and like head button folks after the play and yeah. stuff. Like they were, they were, they were keyed up for that game last night. I don't know if you noticed the same thing. And I think one person I'm going to give a lot of that credit to is Mark Robinson. Just the attitude that dude has, they didn't have that these last couple of years. And, like, I've always been a big fan of Lakia Henry. I get why he's disappeared in this defense. I've always liked Momo both as a player and as a person. I like those guys. But, like, the type of linebacker that Mark Robinson has is something this team has sorely been missing, of someone who's just going to put his head down and oftentimes use it as a weapon and sometimes be penalized for it. But he's just like so downhill and decisive as a linebacker. There were plays he made last night in that A&M game were just like, yeah, I mean, I, he got to the ball faster than anyone would have thought and he blew up the play. And that's why Ole Miss was those second and nines you're talking about. A lot of that is him. And obviously everyone's talked about Chance Campbell this year. But, yeah, Mark Robinson, attitude-wise, I think he has really helped reshape this uh, identity. Were you surprised at uh, A&M's game plan? Because I didn't think it was a good one. They came out and actually threw the ball quite frequently early on and then mixed in the running game. But it seemed like part of this is time and score, so I, it's it's hard to decipher what like actually happened. But, like, I, I felt like that Fisher, much like he did in the Arkansas game, often got impatient with the running game and Ole Miss stopped them a couple of times early and got them behind the sticks. And he didn't completely abandon it, but he didn't kind of beat Ole Miss over the head with the run running game. Like I figured they might. And when you're going that slow and not doing that and kind of have incompletion after incompletion, I just, I didn't understand what they were doing, trying to attack, trying to attack Ole Miss. It was like they got more conservative by not pounding it with the run like as much as they did, if that makes any sense at all. What do you think of the game plan? I thought it was bizarre. Yeah. I mean, starting with the positives, they found something with those 10 yard out routes and it worked like that was a good addition to the game plan. And they really spammed that move in the third quarter, but like, you know how with this old miss team, sometimes it takes them a drive or two to figure out which running back should be getting the ball. Yep. 
that AM team took two and a half quarters to figure out which running back should be getting the ball. It's not like, oh, both of them were struggling. Spiller was struggling, but is it Akani? Akani? I can never pronounce his name. I can't pronounce but, the guy's name either, but you're right. He was much, much better. I think he ended up with 100 yards, and I believe Spiller finished with like 46 or something. Yeah, and the game plan didn't surprise me too much because, I mean, coming into this, this was a matchup between the team in the country with the most fourth down attempts and the team with the fewest. I mean, AM came into the game, I think, having attempted six fourth downs all season. They are a conservative team. They beat you by grinding you and by using their defense and by forcing you to make mistakes. And that's kind of the biggest reason I picked Ole Miss to win. And I never felt good about picking Ole Miss to win in this one. But the one thing that made me feel at least somewhat qualified was the fact that AM thrives so much when it forces turnovers and makes the opponent make a mistake. And Ole Miss just seems like the team that isn't going to beat itself. And for all of the issues the offense had, it didn't beat itself. And when AM didn't have that chance to just flip the field immediately, they kind of fell into their old patterns of not having answers of when they need to make their own plays. You're exactly right. And <laughs> it was – they like they tried to last night, right? You had a couple of fumbles they fell on, and it was like, what, what in that, and what in the hell are they doing? Which, to your point, that's kind of uncharacteristic for this team. Um, you know, you had the crowd fumble, which there's not a ton you can do about that. He kind of got spun around, and the defensive lineman just seemed to punch the ball out in the right spot. Not a ton you can do about that one, but then the the weird one at the goal line where they're fortunate that they were able to fall on the ball after it looked like I couldn't tell if an old miss guy or an AM got kicked it, but like they put the ball on the ground like three times. And I think only AM got it once, but you're right. For the most part, Ole Miss isn't going to beat itself. I didn't pick Ole Miss to win. I just thought it was a weird matchup from how good AM's defensive front is. And that might be a decent way to transition to offense. I didn't think Ole Miss would be able to run the ball the way it did based on what we'd seen the last two weeks. And they did. Jerry on Ely was awesome in this game. Uh, they seem to find some sort of salvation is the wrong word. They seem to solve something with Eli Acker in it guard. Did that surprise you? I guess that's as good a place to any start before you get the running backs all of a sudden. And it took me like two or three jobs to actually notice it. Cause you know, when you're in the game and um, you know, obviously not sitting in the press box either to me, it's harder to pick up on stuff, particularly when you're not sitting like on the sideline as well, but that's neither here nor there. It took me a while to pick up on it. But, man, they ran the ball well. What? Uh, let's start with the Acker part of this. Were you surprised at that? Did Kiffin get asked about that after the game? I watched the press conference on the plane this morning, but uh, I got to be honest, it was 7 o'clock in the morning. And we might have dozed off for part of it. What, uh, what was up with that? What did you think about that move? I think that they have gotten tape on just about every guard they have now, and Eli Acker has been the best of any of them who have gotten an audition. I, I thought that was – good like it's good that they have one of these younger guys that they can build because a lot of these band-aids they've had on the offensive line like Jordan Rhodes is fine to above average but he's not going to be here very long you can build around Eli Acker if things work uh, he played well uh, and I think that the interior of the offensive line especially since Ben Brown and Caleb Warren I, I don't think they've both played in a game together since uh, Tulane I mean, it's been a long time since the full offensive line was on the field. So he looked good. Lane didn't say anything about the, the choice, but I think that I expected Ole Miss to be able to run the ball in bursts. I didn't expect it to be consistent. 
And because I came into this game telling anyone who would listen, hey, they're healthier than they're letting on. And we all knew that. I, I think anyone who listened to your show or who listened to any of us in the media knew they were getting close. So I thought that meant big day from Drummond. Sanders is going to catch a bomb or two. We'll see about Mingo. But no, it meant Jerry Neely having the best day of his college career, I think I'd argue. I know he didn't get into the end zone, but he was very good. And the offensive line held up. Leal had the one fumble forced that you mentioned. But other than that, didn't really hear his name too much. Didn't hear too many of the defensive. I think they had 10 tackles for loss. Give him credit for that. But yeah, it was it was a pretty well-controlled, well-paced game for Ole Miss. Yeah, it really was. And what Ely ends up finishing with, I had it up a second ago. I can't remember how many yards off the top of my head. But let's see. I want to make sure I have this correctly. 152, I believe. Yeah, and how many touches was it? 24, which it seems like – and. You know, almost ran the ball 56 times, and that hasn't always – they haven't always been able to do that this year, given how the game's gone, right? You get behind at Auburn. There's been a couple other instances. But, like, the running back thing has been mystifying in how they've used them. It's not necessarily a bad thing or a problem. It's just there's no way to forecast it on a weekly basis. But it seemed like the strategy of kind of feeding Ely or featuring Ely and then mixing the other two guys in sporadically um, – really worked to Ely's favor. It seemed like he really got settled in and really kind of got better as the game wore on. What did you think of how he played? And, you know, I thought they the, seemed like they had a lot more success. Put it two ways. They had more success in between, like, the interior, like running off the guards than I thought they would. But it seemed like they really found success kind of stretching it horizontally a little bit with Ely, which seems to be his strength at this point. What did you think of how he played? Yeah, I thought he was great. I thought that and I'm sure we're going to talk about the red zone a lot, but him not being on the field for any of those red zone plays, just maybe I'm buying too much into the hot hand fallacy, but he was so effective and he was running through dudes. It's not just like he was playing speed back. So I I thought that he was the guy. I thought he looked really good. This is the guy that when I wrote in the preseason, Hey everyone, we're talking about Matt Corral, but Jerry and Ely is actually going to be the best player on this team. I, I was wrong, but that's the guy I was expecting to see was the guy who, was electric outside the tackles and was strong enough to hold his own between the tackles. Uh, I think we're deep enough into the season now with uh, both Henry Parrish and Snoop Connor to say they are roughly equal running backs. I think one of them is averaging 5.4 yards per carry and the other is averaging 5.38 yards per carry. I mean, you, you give Snoop the ball on the goal line more, so he has more touchdowns, but they are roughly equivalent backs and they should be situationally getting the ball at different times. Parrish is a better receiver. You want to get him the ball in space more. Snoop's a better blocker and better up the middle. You want to get him in those situations. I get that there are different things, but use them about equally 75, 25, 25, or sorry, 50, 25, 25 split between Ely with the 50 and the other two 25. And I think that this, uh, this offense can start clicking again. Yeah. And it's weird because they, they, for part of the year, they'd done, Op- the opposite, right? Like Arkansas, it was a lot of Parrish and a lot of uh, Snoop. But I think there was some health stuff with Jaron Ely in there mixed in, just reading yeah. the tea leaves with Lane. I know he had the concussion, but I think there was something else beyond that as well that was kind of a minor dinged up. Just from le- reading the Lane, like the tea leaves on what Lane has kind of alluded to throughout the year, and particularly after the fact once Ely got healthy. But yeah, I think you're right. I think the way they used them last night was about as effective as you could possibly do it. And what Ole Miss ends up with 257 yards 
rushing. And I thought that was the biggest difference in this game, even for the, all the red zone struggles. And it seemed like last night, and I'm curious to what you think this is a product of, they utilized tempo more so than they'd done at any point in the last month at least. I'm having trouble remembering off the top of my head what the LSU game looked like from tempo, but there was a concerted effort in that game to go really, really, really fast. Even The TV broadcast during one of the timeouts had like a – basically like replayed the previous drive and had like a, like a stopwatch type deal going on in between each snap. They were going really fast. I wonder, do you think part of that's a product of having success running the ball, or is it the other way around? Do you think that them going back to tempo led them have success running the ball? And how much do you, that do you think was two opposite sides here? We're going to be the absolute extreme opposite of what they are, or do you think it was a health thing? What do you think went into that last night? I think health is more than the, the latter with the, uh, be the other side of them. But I also think tempo was a double-edged sword. I, I think that yeah. tempo is the reason why they were putting up so many yards and were struggling in the red zone. I think sometimes you might overthink yourself when you're on the one yard line and think let's run tempo so they can't sub out, but you're not subbing out either. And you don't have your perfect personnel on, on the one yard line. So I think that was probably part of the issue close up, but yeah, they were zooming and yards aren't points. And let's not pretend that yards are points. When you put up 408 yards and a half, you have won the half and they should have been able to keep that up. I, kudos to Elko and, and the Texas D&M defensive staff to slow things down in the third and fourth quarters. But this was as good as the offense has looked definitely since the Arkansas game and perhaps since those Austin P and Tulane uh, slaughterhouses at the beginning of the season. And it was because of that tempo. It was because of how smoothly the offensive line was creating holes there was a run this new pad in, I think it was the second quarter where I turned to the person next to me and said, I think that's the biggest hole I've seen all season. And I think he went up between Amana and Acker on that one. And it's just, the team was moving quick. It was working. And whether you want to call it, they're moving quick. So it was working or it was working. So they're moving quick. I don't think it matters because against Vanderbilt and Mississippi state, the last two teams they're going to play, those are the SEC's two worst teams by big pass plays allowed. And now that you're getting your big receivers back, you're going to be able to mix the play action back in. And that's when this offense, because that's the one thing we didn't see as much yesterday was true yep. corral play action. And that's when he's at his best. So once they start mixing that back in, I am at least a little bit confident that we're going to start to see the points catch up to the yards. That's a good point, and that's something I hadn't really thought about either. And then talk about going fast. With the amount of reshuffling and different guys they've had to use on the offensive line, and when you look at it last night, it's really you have all four back except for Ben Brown, but he was the most experienced player, I'm pretty sure. Um, yep. Like, basically, and Kiffin's called him, like, the anchor of the offensive line before. So it's not like it's – four guys that haven't played a bunch together. It's actually the quite opposite, but they've had to move around a bit. I guess what I'm getting at is where we've seen tempo oftentimes be the reason that some of these receivers haven't really caught on to things, the processing information and kind of knowing what to do and where to go, uh, getting lined up, as Kiffin said. I think the offensive line also deserves some credit for, you know, there hasn't been a lot of cohesiveness throughout the year there, and from that doesn't seem to screw them up. I guess at home more so than the road from a tempo standpoint, they were really good last night and they kind of kept pace and were good for the most part. And I think 
you know, that sometimes kind of get lost because that's not easy to do as an offensive lineman either. It may be slightly easier than kind of having to figure out what to do at receiver, but it's still not, still not, still not easy. Yeah. And let's not just undersell the importance of how good Texas A&M's defensive line is. I know we talked about it a little bit. That's, if not the best, the second best defensive line in the country. George's is probably better. I don't know who else can possibly compete. Maybe you'll give Wisconsin or Penn State. I haven't watched them close enough, but that's a really, really good unit. And they had them on skates going backwards for most of the game. That's impressive. Give the line credit. I don't know if I'm giving them the game ball. I'm still giving that to the defensive line, but the offensive line uh, controlled well enough to keep this team ahead. Absolutely. And so let's get to the, the negative side of it. They had 400 yards in the first half. What did A&M have? I saw it. I, I've tried to find this, but I can't. You're probably better at working stat broadcast than me. I couldn't find the half by half breakdown of the yards, but I know it was some gigantic yardage disparity, yet it's 15 to nothing. And you mentioned the tempo being a double edged sword. I also think it's just harder to do in the field shorter, right? You can go tempo but there's less like ground for the defense to have to cover. So it may not even be a tempo thing. It just seems like that's less effective when there's only 20 yards to the goal line type of thing. And a lot of times you can make an argument that when you get down, you know, near the twenties and space is more limited, that's actually when you might need to slow down slightly and just kind of make sure you have your best cause and are executing a little bit. That seemed to be when, when Ole Miss started to struggle again. And we've seen that kind of rear its ugly head all year. But um, something you said a minute ago, I, I think you have to give credit to just how good this Texas a- A&M defense is as well. I mean, like they were one of the better red zone defenses in the country. Like, yes, part of it was Ole Miss struggling, but A&M made some really, really good run-stopping plays down near the goal line. And so I think while there was the offense has struggled and, you know, you've kind of seen this, I guess, reoccur for you know, on and off for the last – I mean, really for the whole season, but particularly the last month, I just think you got to give some credit to AM's defense in that as well, because that's the best defensive front they've faced all year. Yeah. You want me to go into Tony Reale mode and just give you the stats you were walking around? Absolutely. Uh, they were – A&M came into the game sixth in the country in red zone touchdown defense. Uh, so, yes, best they've played there. Uh, first half yardage discrepancy, Ole Miss 408, Texas A&M 91. My that is a difference of 6.9 yards per play versus 3.4 yards per play. Time of possession was 1737 for Ole Miss, 1223 for Texas A&M. And then, of course, the score was 15 to nothing, though two of those points came from the defense. Yeah, I was pretty critical of Kiffin after this one for the way they handled the red zone. I think some of it is, I mean, there were plays down on the goal line where Jaden Jackson was still in the game. Like I get running tempo, but if you need your best players to be on the field that close to the goal line, go get them, make a substitution. Don't be afraid of them substituting back. You want your best guys. Also, I don't know if this is the case. I've always been curious why the narrative is, oh man, the defense is getting tired. Well, the offense has been on the play, the field, the exact number of plays the defense has. If you're running tempo and you're five and a half minutes into a tempo drive and you've been on the field for 12 plays, you're probably tired too. I mean, these guys give them credit for getting there. 
but they're probably slowing down as they approach the goal line and the field's shrinking, as you alluded to, and it's harder to find space, as you alluded to. It's tough to score down there. And that's why when it was a Phil Longo offense, we were critical of, oh, why can't they punch it in? And when it was a Rich Rodriguez offense, we were critical of, oh, why can't they punch it in? And now with Jeff Levy and Lane Kiffin, we are still critical of it because it's hard and because the one thing the DNA of all three of those coaches had in common is speed, is quickness, is tempo. None of them have been as fast as this Kiffin Levy attack, but yeah, it, it's starting to become a concern that I think in their last three SEC games, they've only scored one touchdown from outside the red zone. So the whole score from far thing isn't working. And on the season, they're converting touchdowns 64% of their red zone trips, so slightly less than two-thirds. Something has to get better. Either the big plays need to come back or you need to start changing the way you attack the red zone. Yep, and and on the other side of that, too, is, look, we just talked about how, you know, Ole Miss ran the ball more consistently than I think we thought they would. Even fully healthy, this offensive line struggled to kind of get push in their short yarded situations, particularly on the interior when fully healthy. And now they're not completely healthy and they were going up against a better defensive line. And I think that's part of it where they just are what they are, right? I mean, they had a goal line issue after in one of the games. I can't remember if it was Alabama or Arkansas. But Kiffin made just some kind of off-the-cuff comment. It's like, you've seen what happens when we can't go tempo and we just have to line up and run it. There's some of that there where they're just not that talented on the offensive line, even when they're healthy. And, I mean, they had not been good running it down by the goal line in between, you know, the guards, or I guess you can put the tackles in it too, all year. That's just not who they are. And I think that we kind of forgot to mention perhaps the biggest factor, which is – The quarterback has 10 rushing touchdowns this year. He was the guy on the goal line. And since he got hurt, they don't do that anymore. And we saw what happened when they tried to do it against A&M. They lost 17 yards on a fumble. I mean, that has also changed things. It's a lot harder when you don't have the gambit of the read option at your disposal. That's, That's absolutely. And we've seen what happens when they've tried to use Plumlee in that role too. It's almost always blown up in their face. And he they give, he's keeping it every time. It's not a read. Yeah. So all of that combines into a, there are a lot of valid excuses, but when you have this much talent on your offense, you should be able to work around them. And it could have been worse. You remember the first touchdown they scored in the second half, it took them to fourth down. I believe that drum and slant player, whatever it was, it took them what? all the way to fourth down at the two. Like if what? that doesn't convert, like that, it, it could have been worse than it was. So, but give them credit. They did enough, but the defense clearly won the game for them. When it was that yardage discrepancy, as you alluded to a second ago, and it's only 15 to nothing at halftime, what were you thinking with regards to your mindset in the second half? Because I know as someone sitting upstairs or up there around a bunch of old Miss people who were just like sweating frantically, like this should be 24 or 31 to nothing. No one felt great about how the game had gone at halftime. And that's that to me, that was a weird vibe given how well the defense played because your defense just pitched a shutout in the first half, thoroughly dominated them. But it seemed like everyone I was around, all they could talk about was, man, this, this might come back to bite them from a missed opportunity standpoint. What was your mindset at halftime about how you thought the second half would go? Well, I think this is where me not growing up watching Ole Miss kind of didn't cloud my judgment there. 
Uh, I don't have, like you do, 26, 27 years worth of memories of all that crap happening. But there was never a point where I thought after the game started that Ole Miss was in danger of losing. There were a lot of points where I thought, oh, no, A&M is going to make this a lot more uncomfortable than it should be. But there was never a point where I thought Ole Miss totally gave up control. And because of that, going into the third quarter, my thought was kind of, they're going to do what they did against Liberty, where they didn't score enough in the first half. The defense is going to be worse than it was in the first half because there's no way the defense can still be that good. But they have built up enough goodwill that I think they should be able to coast into a win. And they didn't coast. I will give AM credit. They put the gas on. But I might have been the only person in the stadium who thought that way. I might have been along the ride with everybody. But I, I thought that just based off of what I'd seen, AM's game plan wasn't the one that was built to come back. The closest to getting completely, as you, I think, as you phrased it, kind of relinquishing control of the game was those two drives where it got to 50, or the one drive where it got to 15 to 13, and Ole Miss still couldn't do anything with it offensively. At that point, AM is having a little bit more success running the ball. You mentioned they had the, the kind of 10 yard out thing there all game. I think that's probably just a product of them seeing Ole Miss all year. Hey, these guys don't really let you go by them. They don't give up the huge deep play, but they've been a little susceptible to just kind of allowing everything underneath the whole bend don't break aspect of it. That was the only time when AM had the ball, and I know it was deeper in their territory for the second drive that was the pick, but whatever the one was before that, I, they got it to 15 13 on the field goal. When AM got the ball back for the interception, I was like, okay, they might be in trouble here. Because now you're not talking about making them go 84 yards and score a touchdown. All they got to do is get into field goal range. And they seemed like they had a decent kicker. I don't know a ton about AM's kicker, but that's when it felt like, oh man, are they going to lose this sucker 16 to 15 somehow and wonder how on earth they only got 16, 15 points in this game? That was the only time. But you're right. The, the game plan with, that AM had never, never really made it a real threat. And so the last thing about this offense, before we get to like some of the crucial stops and get out of here, but Having, I didn't think it was realistic that Mingo would play. None of that ever added up to me. It, he dressed out. I get it. I get that he's probably closer, but just the timeline when you add up the days of the injury versus the surgery, I was like, I just don't necessarily buy this. I, I could maybe buy it in a, two weeks. Hell, maybe we see him next week after I say that. But man, getting Drummond back helped this offense a ton. I think it. I don't know if there's a direct correlation here, but it seemed like it opened up the middle of the field a lot more having that presence in the slot that they hadn't had last week. And even when them not going a lot of play action, as you mentioned earlier, for the first two and a half quarters of that game, Corral was, was really, really sharp from an accuracy standpoint. He fit the, he made some difficult ish throws and tighter windows look easy. I disagree. I thought that was Corral's least accurate game he's played this year. I just thought in the first couple of those, in the first couple of drives to me, and I guess I'd going back and look at it. You, you might be right there, but I just thought there were two or three throws over the middle. I was like, damn, he put that right where it needed to be because oh. I'm also looking at it from the standpoint, this receiving core hasn't been great. And there were a couple of Jacor Pearson catches where I was like, well, damn, that was, that was right on the money. So you thought he was actually a little erratic. I thought he was really erratic to the sidelines. So if you're talking about over the middle, yeah. But I think one comparison that I've never actually made out loud that I'm starting to see more and more is Corral throws the ball over the middle, especially on slants and quick routes, very similar to the way Tua did at Alabama, of his ability to find and lead his receiver away from getting crushed. 
I, I think that's a strength of his game. And it's always been a strength of his game that they really highlighted this year when they moved Drummond into the slot and having Drummond over the middle is key. But you think back to the throw that Corral missed where Pearson should have walked into the end zone. Yep. Uh, you think back to some of the other routes down the sideline where he just couldn't get on the same page with Braylon like he normally does. Just he missed a couple of throws, and that's not a criticism of the Golden Boy by any standards. But I, I do think that he was less sharp to the sidelines and to the numbers than he normally is. Over the middle, he was great. He, he almost always is. He so now you get down to the last parts of the game and it's 15 13 you're thinking man they need i mean right it felt like from the second half of the third quarter on like the last seven minutes third quarter like they're gonna need at least one more touchdown and if they can get that they're fine but if they don't like this that one touchdown that snoop had just felt like such a dramatic swing in the game and i know i'm stating the obvious but i think that could have come at any point in the second half and it still would have been almost as dramatic of a swing with the way that game was going but credit the defense. They lose Jake Springer pretty much immediately in the second half. That didn't seem like the smartest play on his behalf. That The kind of wild hell he and I alluded to earlier seemed like to get the worst of him uh, in that regard. Uh, again, I guess it could be hard to hear the whistle, but I went. I was actually in the bathroom when that happened at the time, but I watched it this morning, and I was like, yeah, that wasn't smart. Like, the guy was wrapped up. There's no need for that. Then A&M started running it a little better, and then they had the so they had the field goal drive and the touchdown drive back to back and you're thinking oh god here it goes again like this, this defense gonna look a little different outside of Springer but then they figured it out a little bit it seemed like they had I wrote down a note after watching this morning they did some more three linebacker stuff they went with five defensive backs where it was Sistrunk and then some combination of Lakia and Chance or Mark Robinson and Chance and they did that that was probably just in an effort to. I guess supplement some of what Springer does from a you know run it was actually standpoint. it was actually replacing Taishin. Okay, so that's okay. I missed that then. So when did he go out of the game? He didn't play. So Trey Washington was in there as well a little bit. I just didn't notice a lot of the three linebacker stuff until after Springer went out of the game. But they could have done it earlier, and I just missed it. So you think that was more of a product of Taishin Johnson not being that's, available? That that was Kiffin's answer when I asked about why Sistrunk was playing so much was that. Sistrunk was effectively playing linebacker as a job to replace Taishin Johnson, which I think if you went back a month in time and told Ole Miss fans, hey, they have a scheme in place where they can put an extra linebacker on the field, everybody would just throw their arms up in the air and say, well, what are we doing here? But yeah, that was what it was. It was Ashanti Sistrunk was effectively replacing Taishin Johnson. And then when Springer went down, they moved Kedron back to safety to kind of help with that and Trey Washington to supplement, which it was a good, it, it worked well against a team the way that, that runs the ball the way AM does to have the extra bigger body. But this is probably some inside journals and stuff that you'll get a kick out of. Uh, the listeners might not care as much about, but you talk about that Snoop run. When Snoop ran the touchdown, that's when I started brainstorming headlines and <laughs> As you'll know from somebody who spent a lot of time in the press box, you don't write a headline until you know your story is done. And so I saw Snoop run that in and I thought, okay, I, I'm avoiding cataclysm. I think I can start writing. And to me, that embodied the, the talking about the changing of the mindset of both of this defense and how we perceive them is – you know, they have, they've had some depth issues or they don't have as much depth as they would prefer is the best way to put that. And you're thinking, are they going to eventually rear down and run out of gas in the second half? And part of the answer I saw Kiffin said was 
Well, they went so slow, it actually helped our guys, son. There was very – I don't think they did any of the faking injury stuff. A&M actually did that a time or two. I don't remember <laughs> Ole Miss doing it. If they did it, it wasn't often. But then credit to them, they, they, they got takeaways when they needed it the most. And you've actually seen that in spurts throughout the last four weeks, right? They were completely toast at Auburn. That game was over, over. And then Chance Campbell strips it, recovers the fumble, and gives them, you know, a shot of life. It gave them at least one more shot at winning the game. But they forced two incredibly huge takeaways. I think the Sistrunk interception where it goes off, I can't remember if that was a receiver or tight end's hands. I think it was Demas, yeah. Yeah, it was his, his hands was, um, you know, but part of that's good fortune, but he's right there, right on him as it happens, and he comes up with the football. And then A.J. Finley, huge pick six to kind of put the exclamation point on top. Look, the defense scored nine points, and they won by ten. I know that's not the smartest way to look at the game by any stretch, but I don't think that's completely insignificant. They – they, and I mean, really, they scored 17 because all Ole Miss had to do was the one – pop off the one Snoop Connor run, and I know that's no easy task with the way that game was going, but – the one touchdown almost got in the second out. The defense put them, you know, 80% of the way there. Let's test your memory. When was the last pick six before Finley? I was about to say Zedrick Woods at AM in 18, but that was the one where he picked up the fumble, fumble. Yeah. and ran it all the way back. I, oh man, I don't. Was it 20? This is, I know this is not the right answer. It's not the 2015 Egg Bowl, is it? No, it was Vernon Dasher against Southern Illinois in 18. Okay, I don't feel as bad for not remembering that one. I was like, surely that one that – I can't remember who returned the one in the 15 Egg Bowl, but that was the last one that came to mind. That's a long time, though. Yeah. That's a long time without a pick six. But yeah, it's been a while. I, mean, I know the game was out of consequence at that point, and AM driving it was a little bit different, but that made you feel a hell of a lot better. It made it a touchdown two-point conversion, like to, for it even to keep it at one-score game after they did score, like – Credit to them. I don't know. They just made play after play, and they didn't get worn down. And, you know, it ne- the dam never broke for them. And there were some weird moments in the middle of that game. So, what big picture before I let you get out of here, what, are, what do you think, like, a day, like, like, do you think this is, if Kiffin's around, you know, three, four more years or something like that, and I know that's a different conversation, and this thing kind of continues to build, don't you think this is a day that they'll look back at as a really huge springboard? Because this puts them on the realistic precipice of having their first 10-win regular season. I think ever college game day and really the kind of turning of the tide of this, you know, terrible Ole Miss defense kind of becoming a respectable one. Uh, this to me for a lot of different reasons felt like a day you might look back on in a couple of years and be like, that was an important day for the program and the staff. Yeah. I think if you go back and, and you think of the significance of the 2014 Alabama game, when game day was in town of how that established what the peaks of the Hugh freeze era were, this isn't that because this doesn't feel like a peak. Yes, that's a great way to put it at all. This feels like a glimpse in a lot of ways. And don't get me wrong. I think that it's going to be another two or three years before Ole Miss is this good again. I don't think they're going to be a 10-win team every year just because they've got so much talent this year that won't be there next year. But... I think when you look at this, that's the type of game you can sell to recruits. And a lot more importantly, that's the type of game you can sell to grad transfers. And that's how this team's going to have to build these next couple of years. And that's, that's a game that you look at it and say, look how competitive we are. Look how hard we're playing in a close game in front of a sellout crowd. That's, that's all you want. And 
Whereas that freeze game in 14, I, I guess the probably closest combination or closest comparison I can think of from the freeze era, this game is Kiffin's version of the 2012 Egg Bowl when Kemdichi and Treadwell and all those guys were on campus waiting to commit to Ole Miss or waiting to sign with Ole Miss. I think this is Kiffin's kind of, hey, look at us, we're here game. That's a good one. Without, I don't think, do you think he did the strategic speech in the back where he just started naming the different towns, the recruits for some saying the out-of-state guys understand this robbery, the in-state guys, probably less self-righteousness, but I, I think that's a good one. Another one that came to mind after you said that was 2013 LSU, where they won that game with a good yeah. defensive effort. They were a lot more shorthanded. And that's the one where in 13, they lost three in a row. That was going to make it four. I, wish, I think I wish he was number six in the country at that time. And it was like, okay, now you can start to see it. They're finishing off and beating game, beating good teams and finishing games. And I think that's a, a, some similar parallels there. So before I let you get out of here, do you think they get to 10 and two? Because that team in Starkville is playing pretty good football, but I don't think it's the, I think it's a good matchup for Ole Miss going over there. That game always gets weird, as you know. I mean, you've been around it long enough to figure that out. It didn't take long. I kind of think they do it. I mean, my God, if they lose to Vanderbilt, I don't really know what the, what, what the discussion even is. But I th- what do you think about the Egg Bowl? I think they can get to 10-2. I, I actually kind of like their chances now that they've gotten past this. I wrote my way-too-early predictions in January, and I had State winning the game then. And then I wrote my preseason predictions in August, and I had State winning the game then. And I still don't know if I've seen enough to change my opinion. Because my opinion was always midway through year two is when things start to click for Mike Leach teams. And boy, has that proven itself right so far. They look really, really good right now. If Ole Miss is fully healthy on offense, I could see the over-under being up near the high 70s, low 80s for this one. I don't know if that's fair to how well Ole Miss's defense has been playing and how good state's defense has been at times this year but yeah i mean right now i think it's a coin flip right now i can't make up my mind on on which team is better i think that to Ole miss's credit they've shot themselves in the foot fewer times than state this year state realistically should be seven and three eight and two instead of what are they six and four i think that's Um, correct yes they should have an extra win or two uh the memphis game comes to mind the arkansas game comes to mind they, they've played better than their record, but I don't know. I, I think that you ask me right now, are they going to have 10 wins in the regular season? I'm like 55% no, 45% yes. I'm really, really close. I think I'm about flipped the other way. I think I'm slightly in favor of yes, because I think the one advantage they have going for them is they're getting healthy offensively, and you'll kind of have a game to get right and get guys more back cohesive and kind of have the yeah. full set of troops. And again, they're going to kick the shit out of the other team. And I'm curious to see how much of an effect – that has with their two weeks into it going to state on a short week and how much better they look on offense. As you alluded to earlier, when you were talking about the play action, like I think with the guys back, the points will eventually catch up with the yard. So fascinating stuff, uh, you know, exciting time to cover the program. You don't talk soccer, dude. Do you watch the EPL? I got to fill up soccer corner here too. Even if you say, no, I don't watch soccer. So it's never stopped us before. I have picked up a team this year. I Ooh. do watch the EPL. I've been a Wolves fan this year. I've compared it to uh, watching like a service academy college football. Wolverhampton's yeah. real fun because they just like have the ball for 22 minutes at a time and then forget to score. It's, <laughs> it's extremely maddening. 
Uh, and now that the Titans are actually kind of good, I need that sort of maddening uh, sports presence in my life. I, uh, I I adopted Brentford because I was told that they were bought by uh, sports sharp, like sports betting sharps, and they're big into analytics. I don't know what that means in soccer, but the name The Bees was pretty cool. So I hopped on board with them. But this Saudi guy that bought Newcastle United, I'm, if they don't get relegated, I might have to hop on them. That just sounds hilarious. The guy's worth like, what, like, $300 billion or something. And like Manchester United in itself is like a $7 billion franchise or something. It just, it, it was wild to me, the amount of money. So I might switch allegiances depending on a Newcastle does cool ass jerseys, but uh, I appreciate the contribution. Soccer corner lives on because of Nick Suss. And before we go, if we're talking about kicking things, how have we talked for an hour and you didn't talk about Mac Brown's fake field? I know as an oversight, I didn't, cause it's disappointing. Like, Fall forward. I, my man has great street fight skills, street instincts. You think his football instincts might be a little better. Fall forward. And then I think Kevin pointed out in the postgame, but why didn't Casey Kelly just sling him forward? Like that, that wasn't a great – you can't blame the guy for it, but it wasn't the, the finest instincts. But just just help my, my punter get over the top. Just let throw him forward. I was, I was disappointed not in – I was not disappointed in Mac Brown. I was disappointed in the situation because that would have been great content in the final two weeks of his career. I don't know how many soda pops in you were at that point, but what was your reaction in the stadium when you saw Mac Brown get a carry? I, I was, so I, I was, I would, I know never in my wildest dreams. I think at that point they were going to not kick it. So it happened so fast. It took me a minute to realize it was Mac Brown. I had to watch the replay. I know he holds, but I had to watch the replay to figure out, wait a minute, what the hell just happened? Cause I was just so, I guess, locked in on the fact that they were going to kick it. And so it was like, brief excitement and then I remembered that he didn't get it and it was hard to tell because like I was like maybe that looks kind of close from our angle because he was coming at us but then on replay you could tell he didn't get it and I was like damn it this sucks so it was brief elation but more more confusion and then sadness for my man Mac if he had scored a touchdown I might have run out on the field A, a thing I don't understand about the rules of college football how is that legal if you're catching the ball with your knee on the ground like, shouldn't the ball um, immediately be ruled dead when the holder catches the ball? Why is that the only exception to your knee is down in college football? I've never thought about that. Oh, this is the stuff I think about constantly. In case yeah, you want to know what's rattling mind. in my brain. I'm sure if you ask the SEC office, they will give you a straightforward answer about an officiating rule. So just call up the conference. I'm sure they will gladly explain it to you. Oh, I mean, people who listen to a smattering of Ole Miss podcasts probably heard me on one of your rival podcasts rant for 20 minutes the other day about how the rule book is too thick and the problem isn't the officials. It's just that there are too many rules. I don't know. There's many rules in football. We can eliminate some of the dumber ones. The fumbling out of the end zone touchback doesn't seem like it makes a ton of sense. And then you just brought up a new one. I don't, I'm not saying it should be illegal. I'd like to know why it's legal, though. Oh, there are so many things. Like, imagine. If you had somebody who had never watched a football game before, how many clips of roughing the passer would you have to show them before you think they could accurately identify roughing the passer? The answer could be endless because every like 15th one, they're going to be like, wait a minute, this, I thought I was getting this. And then I saw, you know, the, I mean, I'm a Titans guy. But the the roughing the passer that set up the touchdown where Tannehill got hit the numbers. Complete joke. Yeah, I was like, so every there's gonna every like fifteenth one you show them, I think it, you're gonna have one of those, and they're like, well, I thought I was getting this, but now explain that one way. So my answer to that's never, I think. I've been I've joked for years that one of my goals in life is one week I want to take a bunch of time off and watch nothing but cricket 
but I want the game to be on mute. So I don't get to hear the commentary or the rules at all. And I just have to, in my head, figure out how cricket works. And I don't invent the terms in my head, figure out what the rules are, and then talk to somebody who knows cricket and be like, this is what I think is happening. Am I right? And I don't know how long it would take for that sport. But like, if you did that with baseball, or if you did that with basketball, I think it would take somebody about four games to figure out the rules. Man, you could watch a 256-game NFL season, and I think there would be some rules that never come up or get any clarity. That would be a fascinating social study. When you do end up doing that, open invitation to come back on and please bring your, please discover your findings because uh, I probably am not going to watch cricket. I might have to. I could hell. I could do that with like hockey because I know very little about hockey. But if you do that, let me know and we will do a cricket podcast. We will rebrand this thing. Yeah, cricket or highlight or one of those sports that is big somewhere else that I do not watch. I know how to pronounce highlight. That's that's about all I can say about that sport. I know to put pucks on net in hockey. So we're all we're off to a rip roaring start. He is Nick Suss. I appreciate the time, dude. It was great to catch up. And uh, next time in Oxford, when you're not uh, in season, we'll uh, snack some beers. Absolutely, buddy. And that was Nick Suss. Appreciate him hopping on and uh, talking to me for. 45 minutes an hour there on everything that transpired yesterday. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. And uh, I sure did enjoy catching up with my guy, Nick. Before we get to Colin, I want to remind you the podcast brought to you by Manscaped. That's right. Manscaped, the ultimate in men's hair grooming. You need to join the over 2 million men that use Manscaped. They author precision tools for your jewels. Lawnmower 4.0 model. Got an LED light. Nice portable charger. Skin safe technology blades, different guards, one through four. You need to make sure things are under control down there. The, I heard the 70s were a wild time, but Manscaped is here to make sure that things don't get out of control. You want to be nice and groomed and kept down there. Manscaped is the best in men's grooming. They have the best technology, the best tools. You need to check out the Lawnmower 4.0 model. Use the pro, promo code MPW to get 20% off any purchase at manscaped.com. Check them out. Here's Colin Brister. All right, we now welcome on my baseball podcast cohort, uh, getting a little fall ball action in on the podcast, fall <laughs> potting action to talk some Ole Miss A&M and really just the, the season as a whole and what's this been, checking with Colin Brister for the first time in a while. What's up, dude? Long time, uh, long time no pod, I guess would be the right way to describe it. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure. No, it's uh, everything's going good, man. Uh, te- teaching a little history and, and coaching a little baseball and basketball nowadays. It's uh it's been a, it's been a, I don't know, since probably four months since we've done one, but uh, yeah, so, uh, Ole Miss has uh, won a lot of football games um, since that time for sure. Yes, they have. The Rebels are eight and two, and one of the reasons saying I that out loud is crazy to me. Eight it really is. <laughs> like eight and two, I believe they hadn't been eight and two probably since. Well, I don't well, know when I they started that. that. I don't know when the last time they were eight and two is, but I did go and look at this. Uh, this will be the most wins they take into the Egg Bowl in program history, assuming a, uh, a natural disaster doesn't happen uh, on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, if we're talking about a loss next week, I don't really. Yeah. I got nothing for I you. But nothing. yes, you're right. It's a big. Like, I mean, it's it's a big deal, but it's also been a weird season. That right? And you've been, you know, going to these games and following Ole Miss for pretty much your whole life, just like I have. Yeah. It's 
let's just let's get to the game first last night. I know you were you didn't go. You were watching from the comfort of your own home like a sane person instead of sitting in that cold. I say that mostly tongue in cheek. I thought it was cool that everyone turned out to the game. It was just a little chilly and uh, I was partially envious of uh, you being on a warm couch. But what did you think of just how everything the entire day went? I went over this with Sus a little bit at the beginning of this podcast. But it just seemed like it was everything came together quite nicely. And one of the things that stuck out to me that I didn't mention earlier, Kiffin is always thinking about that, the marketing and the branding aspect of it. Because, and I know all coaches are to some degree, but he mentioned in his post-game press conference last night, he goes, you know, I was thinking all day, if we could just pull this off, like we got game day here, if we can just find a way to pull this game off, I, I, he felt like it would be an important moment. And I just thought it was kind of telling to hear them, like hear him, think out loud basically for the whole time he's like all right we got game day here like this is a massive stage and we can just pull this off i thought the way he phrased that was interesting it kind of shows that he's always selling product and i think that's a good thing what do you think of everything that happened yesterday from the setup to the game uh yeah no it's that's a really good way to put it um yeah that was awesome uh you know like i said like you said i, I didn't make it yesterday i went to arkansas lsu and liberty and, and just decided to take yesterday off mainly because it was freezing cold and i didn't feel well uh, but no, I think that's a really good way to put it because you, for the first time, obviously, since he's been here, you've got game day here, you've got this. Uh, I think it was the biggest game, obviously, in his era um, since since he's been the head coach here, uh, maybe with the exception of Alabama this year. But I, I think once that ball kicked off in Tuscaloosa and you kind of saw the line of scrimmage, there wasn't really much hope that Ole Miss was going to win that football game. Um, but but this game was the one that, that put you in really good shape to play in a New Year's Six Bowl. Um, I know the odds are long, but it kept you mathematically alive to win the SEC West. I mean, and, and that's, you know, look, again, I understand the odds of Alabama losing to Arkansas and Auburn are very, very low. Uh, but what's the last time we could say that in November Ole Miss can win the SEC West? That, that's that's kind of an insane statement to say out loud after what they've gone through the past six years. Um, yeah, no, but it, it, it was it was a really good day for Ole Miss. Really, really good day to be an Ole Miss fan. Um, I think it's the program's biggest win since they left New Orleans. Is that is that fair? Um, yeah, I was trying to think of that. I I think I was almost just going to troll the the listeners out there. And point, I was going to say one the twenty seventeen Egg Bowl and then two the twenty nineteen Egg Bowl, but those were big for different reasons. Yeah, yeah, and I guess it wasn't a win, and it well theoretically it was exactly uh, spin zone. It was a win, but I get what you're saying. I can't think of right. one. I, when, yeah. I, they haven't played in big games since. That's what I've been right. writing about a lot this year. Is like I know Alabama didn't go the way people wanted it to, but the fact that they're playing multiple games on big stages that matter is something they haven't done in five six years. Right, um, and they're going to play another one that, that matters on Thanksgiving night um, against the Mississippi State team that. Uh, frankly, is pretty good. I mean, th th this Mississippi State team that they're going to play on Thanksgiving is not the same team that went to the Liberty Bowl and got beat. This is a really good team play uh, with, a, with a really good quarterback that's playing right now. Um, that, oh, I think Ole Miss can win the football game and probably will. Um, but, you know, it's it, that's the that's the thing, man. Like, you, you keep winning big games or you win a big game, it gives you an opportunity to play another one, and then it gives you an opportunity to play another one. Um, it's, it's crazy to me how two years ago this program, the biggest storyline was that, you know, your star wide receiver, or I guess you could have star wide receivers in Rich Rodriguez's program. I don't, I don't really guess you can. Um, but your wide receiver that that had the most yards uh, on the team, dog peed in the end zone, cost you a 15-yard penalty, and you missed an extra point on national TV on, in front of God and everybody on Thanksgiving night. And two years later, the story is that you won a game um, against the top, what, 11 team? 
um, and put yourself in position to go to the sugar bowl or the peach bowl. I, I, I don't think people understand how fat and, and some of it, honestly, God, I think is because with COVID, everything feels so long ago, but that was two years ago. And, and today Ole Miss is going to play a game on Thanksgiving night where if they win it, they are going to go to a New Year's Six Bowl. That sounds crazy to think about. When it took freeze, one 2012, 2013. So three years. Three. So it's, this is a year ahead. I mean, how, how quick did the Hugh Freeze rise feel from 2012? 2013 was a right. weird year, but that, like, that felt, even if it was only a year longer, that rise felt slower and it was obviously built, you know, kind of through a couple of recruiting classes. I know the 2013 one was the headliner, but they developed some guys in 12 and kind of kept adding to it. This has come after a, you know, five and five COVID season. I, I think that's probably, don't you think it's an eight and 14 last year in a normal year, right? Like coming with, you know, they've kind of made it happen with the portal and then they've turned Matt Corral into a Heisman caliber quarterback and it's all come together so fast. I think people lose sight of that sometimes because, so I was reading the post game, the message board this morning. Um, and so I called in, I did my part of the Chase and Neil's post game show but I didn't, I wasn't in a position to listen to the rest. And I, I'm not, I've, I've heard some stories about the caller. So uh, after about two games of watching that, I was like, oh, okay, I'll probably just pass off after my part. But <laughs> um, they were saying that they thought from the callers and judging by, I guess, the feed, I think they have people commenting in the feed that they thought some people were still kind of uh, a bit negative about it. I, I, I didn't get a great sense of everything like fan base wise other than the people walking around me after the game I, that was stunning to me i don't understand what you could be upset about from yesterday that it was a massive win on a massive stage to get you on the real like on the doorstep of going 10 and 2 which has never happened here in a regular season right so like i well, did you get any of that sentiment I, um, I was surprised by that no i'll be honest with you once that game ended i went to sleep but um so i you know i didn't talk to a whole lot of people last night but I will tell you that there was some sentiment after Ole Miss beat LSU 31 to 17 that why wasn't it 38 to three? It's like, buddy, they're going to go. They're, they're seven. And at that point, I think, well, they're seven and one, like it's going to be okay. Um, so, you know, I, I would be shocked. If there was some kind of that sentiment and, and it's hard, right? Like I do, I think that fans probably need a little bit of a pass and that when you've watched this team and how they played for so long, it's, they win games by outscoring people. And when the offense just had the night that it has yesterday, it's like, well, you, you harp on this offense and the lack of success, the defense won you a football game. Um, and I think that needs to be the storyline is, is the defense, you know, had it's what, and you can disagree with me here if you want to. Um, but I think it was the best defensive performance that they've had under Lane Kiffin. Um, I don't maybe know would qualify as a close second. Indiana and the, in the Outback Bowl would be the only other one against a non-Vanderbilt team because Vanderbilt doesn't count. I'm not even sure they're a D1 football team at this point. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it was peculiar how you won the football game because you usually have to win football games scoring 45 points. But uh, you got to get a lot of credit to this defense, man. And, and I said this last night. Uh, I don't really have problems admitting I was wrong. Uh, I was wrong on DJ Durkin. Give that guy a lot of credit. After that Arkansas game, I was like, I don't know how this fellow survives the year. Um, or survives, you know, and makes it in 2022. And right now um, he's done one heck of a coaching job to put this team in position to win football games when the offense is just not executing at the level it was at the beginning of the year. I mean, if this defense had not improved after Arkansas, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about losses to Tennessee and Texas A&M last night. Um, and then we're talking about a, what, a six and four football team? 
um, instead of an eight and two when it's a completely different conversation. So, so give that guy and that defense a heck of a lot of credit, man. They, they have come up with huge play after huge play. And what was weird about last night, right, is every time AM would get it, like down 18 to or 15 to 10 or 18 to 13 or whatever it was, 15 to 13, it was just like, well, they're going to go score and take the lead at some point. And they never did. Um, I, I Every time they got the football down one possession or less than, you know, where a touchdown gives them the lead or ties the game or whatever, I was like, well, they're going to go score here. Um, and they didn't. And, and they never really got close outside of kicking one field goal to cut it to two. Um, Ole Miss just continued to make plays on the defensive side of the football. And, and man, they, they deserve so much credit for that because they're working really kind of with a, with a thin too deep on that side of the football too. Yeah, they are. And to, to hit your first point, we were talking about the, the, the fan reaction to it. I don't think there's a large majority or a large section of people that are like in any way, like upset or anything. I don't want to make this like misconstrue this, but I think like to me, I would think you would be excited to watch your defense win a football game for you because that hasn't happened. And I mean, they've done, they've had some good performances earlier this year, but it certainly didn't happen last year. I guess you could make the case against Indiana in the Outback Bowl, but I just have so much trouble kind of how, how real I think anything in 2020 was and then Indiana <laughs> backup quarterback. But you haven't had a game like this where Ole Miss won it with its defense and like in rather dominating fashion at times, Ole Miss manhandled AM at the line of scrimmage. They couldn't do yeah. anything running the ball. That to me, as I mentioned earlier in the show, was the most shocking and jarring part of this game. Uh, I figured AM would run for 180, 220, somewhere in there. You know, if they ran for like 290, well, it's like Ole Miss probably lost. I just figured it would come down to how they defended when the field got short down in the 30s and 20s. I'd made that point all last week, but them dominating the way they did. And it not even really becoming coming via sacks or turnovers. They were just that good against the run, and the secondary had a great game. I think people, I would think people would be kind of like, finally, like this is happening because you hadn't seen something like that since the freeze era, where they, you know, played that hell of a game in 2017 against the Alabama defense, or excuse me, in 2014 at home against Alabama. And then I thought they played pretty well. Uh, the Robert Kimdichi game in 15. You haven't had games like that since then. And I also think winning games in different ways is the sign of a good coaching staff that and yeah. you know, having it a coaching advantage. And they've certainly won games in a lot of ways this year. And I think that's a testament to the staff. And then the last part of it was you're talking about with Durkin. He has. They've gotten so much better. Uh, clearly, we've talked about it ad nauseum on this show. Getting straight Jake Springer back was massive for them. We only had one game sample size of like what he was, but you could quickly see during the Tennessee game and particularly the LSU game, like the importance he brought to the defense from, you know, moving Otis back to some, a little bit more of a natural position, but it's, I guess it's easier and we always do this and it's really just a product of being a consumer uh, than anything else. It's not uncommon, but it's easier to see like the plan in motion when they're having success. And now that they're playing well defensively, you can kind of see it, like what they were thinking with Chance Campbell and what they've done in the portal. They, it all makes more sense now, whether it's the scheme itself or who they went and got in the portal. Now they're having success. You can kind of see, you know, it was pretty well-crafted plan. It just took some time to kick in, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I mean, the, the the job that Jake Springer has done this year, and, you know, obviously he gets ejected yesterday and right at the beginning of the second half. And, and that's when I thought, oh, crap, because he's such a linchpin of this defense that, you know, I thought it was going to go to crap. And, man, that's where they deserve so much credit is that guys just stepped in and made plays. Yashanti Sistrunk, um, A.J. Finley, guys that have it, you know, uh, that are young. 
um, have it went and made plays and, and and won the football game. It is it is a remarkable performance. And the thing is, like, you know, you can talk about this defense and getting better, but here's the thing, man. Um, they are getting better. And I know the offense hasn't put up, you know, just dominating numbers, but I still feel like I trust Jeff Levy and 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 Lane Kiffin to figure that out, especially if these receivers are back. Um, Jonathan Mingo was dressed yesterday. I'm not sure if he got in. I don't know. I didn't notice him if he did. I don't think um, he did. But every week I say that, and then the guy that I'm talking about in question ends up with like two snaps. So, but the point being, he I didn't make an that. impact. I don't think he played. Um, but you know, I, I think he will play next week, and I think he will play Thanksgiving Day and Starkville. And, and you know, Jerion Ely has a big game. Thank God, been waiting for that all year. Um, he's had two big games in a row against Liberty and against Texas A&M. Um, you know, he he's a heck of a football player, but. You know, it's the offense didn't have the day you were looking for, obviously. But like I said, you you, you still trust those two offensive guys to be able to figure it out, um, especially over the next two games. Because I, I woke up to like a, a group message thread talking about, you know, like weaknesses of Ole Miss right now. It's like, well, at this point, you're like, you don't have weakness. Well, you do have weaknesses, but they don't matter. Like you won the football game. Um, you can deal with whatever else you have to deal with on Thursday night in Starkville. Uh, then, like you have one game left that determines where you're going to go play football in January. Um, so, you know, it's it's a situation with this offense. I understand people are upset. You get 400 yards in the first half or whatever it was, and you score 13 offensive points. Um, but sometimes it just goes like that. And 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 I, I have full trust in those two guys that they'll get it figured out from an offensive standpoint. No, sure, like there was some bad, I thought, decision-making yesterday. I thought the third and 17 run call was pretty bad. Uh, I thought when they got down in fourth and one at the goal line and, and you uh, throw the flat pass and you throw the, the ball into the flat for Casey Kelly, I thought that was pretty bad. Uh, just because you, you you didn't give Matt Crow one chance to throw the ball in the end zone in four plays, um, I thought the fake field goal call, not necessarily like the <coughs> the call, I thought it was, it was a really big deal to go up 18 to 10 there, uh, especially with it being fourth and three. So, I think that's what gives me a little bit of confidence is, man, like I didn't think Jeff Levy and Lane Kiffin had particularly good days yesterday, and you still won the football game against the top 11 team by 10 points. No, it's a great way to put it. And then the other side of it with the offensive piece, it, it hasn't looked great the last three weeks. And even at times against LSU didn't look great. They just ran it well enough to get enough points and then kind of sit on the game. But – this was also the first game. I mean, look, having Drummond back with the healthy-ish Sanders um, is huge. Like, having two of the trio that have been missing is a massive difference maker, particularly with Drummond in the slot. And then even whether you get Mingo back or not, this was the first game that they were back healthier. And then you're going to have a week next week where you can get a lot of in-game reps against an opponent you're going to kick the hell out of and kind of get back gelling again. Because when you have that many moving parts and guys going in and out, and then just really a lack of weapons for a three-week stretch, to expect them to be sharp immediately against that defense, this is a little unrealistic. I mean, they were they, don't get me wrong. They could have played much better on offense and probably should have in some aspects. I just think it might take a week or two, and luckily they get Vanderbilt before they go to the Egg Bowl, yeah. before they go to Starkville on a short week for the egg bowl. So I think that's a piece of it as well. And then the last part of it is AM's defense is really, really good. That defensive front is really good. They were one of the best red zone yeah. teams. If I'm not mistaken in the mistaken, I get correct on that every time. It's not a word. Did you know that? Um, but they're really good. And 
Yes, there were some issues they were down by the goal line, but that's also Ole Miss. Is, that's just kind of not who they are. They like they when you line up in obvious running situations by the goal line, they struggled with that when they were healthy. So it's just it's it's just not who they are. I think they'd eventually like to get better, but I don't see that changing this year. And so I think you got to give the other side a little bit of credit too, because whatever that kid's name is, uh, six for A and M on the defensive line is a freak, and they have three or four of those freaks. And so I thought A and M made some great plays down there when the field got short as well. But to me, it was also just a product a little bit. That's kind of who this offense is. Tempo is going to help them a lot, but when tempo is not effective, effective down by the goal line, they're not going to be the greatest. Should they be better? Yes, but part of it was A and M. Part of it's just how they're designed, in my opinion. Yeah. It's like I was I was there watching the game with somebody last night. Now, you know, I'm getting frustrated because the offense isn't performing. And it just felt like every time Ole Miss would get it, they would go score a touchdown. It's like, you know, uh, the game would be, you know, not for, for all intents and purposes, is over. And it's like, I don't understand why, you know, why, why we can't go punch in the end zone. It's like my buddy that was sitting by me, he's like, you know, A&M's trying too. And I'm like, yeah, okay, fair enough. Because I think, you know, as an Ole Miss fan, you just are so used to it doesn't really matter who's on defense. We're going to go score because screw you. Like against Arkansas, it didn't matter who they had on defense. They were, Ole Miss was going to go score. And it kind of felt like that in a way against Tennessee too. Um, so it's it's I have to, you know, sit back and say, hey, this offense isn't, you know, it, it wasn't what it was when they took the field against Arkansas. It wasn't what it was when it took the field against, um, you know, Louisville because, you know, they're banged up. They've, they've gotten banged up this year. Um, but they have continued to find ways to win football games. And, you know, look, <laughs> I know the defense set it up, but but give them credit. Uh, you know, Ole Miss gets the football uh, up 15 to 13 with, you know, after the turnover from, I guess that was Sistrunk's turnover. They get the they get the turnover. They get it in the end zone. Could have been really easy to, you know, screw that up, kick a field goal. You're up 18 to 13. A&M still one score away from taking the lead. Uh, but you you get the ball in the end zone there. Um, Snoop Connor has a big run after going down with an injury in the first half and, and you push it out to two scores and then the defense gets the pick six from AJ Finley that pushes out of reach. Um, you know, look, the offense, obviously that's not a banner night for, for Kiffin and Levy, but you know, sometimes you just got to let your defense win football games. And I think that was, has been the frustrating part. So, you know, for so long for Ole Miss fans, like if the offense doesn't have it one night, you're not able to win football games because the defense can't go win you a game. Um, and to me, last night we being a sign that hey, they can go win you a football game even if you don't put up forty points um, is is one heck of a sign for moving forward. Yep, and it changes the way you think about them. Like you, you're you Sus pointed this out earlier, but it's like you kind of start expect like you kind of look at them now and you're like you kind of expect them to get stopped. That seemed to change last night. You know, you got about through. I mean, at a certain point, like you get seven minutes, eight minutes to go in the game in the fourth quarter. You're like, all right, well, they're not going to get really worn down much more than they would have you know, on the last possession here. So like I started thinking, okay, maybe they'll actually get a stop here. Like, uh, which is a weird way to frame it because they played great, but you see what I'm getting at. We're just the, yeah. the mindset and expectations. I think both them and how people perceive them is changing as well. And then the last part, like the big picture part of this talking about the offensive struggles and frustrations, one big thing about this staff that stuck out to me was the thing I mentioned earlier about winning games in different ways. But if that's their bad night last night, now granted, if yeah. it would have, it would have manifested itself more and become more of a problem had Ole Miss not played such a great game defensively, but it still felt relatively minor. Like there hasn't, and granted it's only year two, but there hasn't been the, 
what the hell was Ole Miss doing at that game in 2015 at Florida or kind of looking just completely lethargic after a quarter against Memphis. Like there was freeze had some really, really great games and some really well coached and really caught well called games, but he also had quite a few duds sprinkled in and I just can't, maybe I'm missing something and I'm not thinking of a game, but there hasn't been that huge overwhelming dud from this coaching staff yet. So that no, to me is a net positive. And no, like, and, and, the thing with like this coaching staff from a play calling perspective um, and, and maybe I, I know football a little bit more than I did back when freeze was, was coaching or whatever. Um, but I can at least usually see what they're going for. Even if I, you know, d- disagree with it. Cause like right. Lane talked about last night with the fake field goal, um, the alignment just, you know, wasn't what they had planned on and that's why it didn't work. And, you know, you go back and watch it and, and, and I kind of see what he's talking about. Uh, my, my issue with the fake field goal was I thought it was just imperative to take a, a eight point lead, which is, you know, as, as much of a one possession lead as possible. Um, but, you know, even like the third and 17, um, which I had issues with because you have the best quarterback in America, let him play football. I understand what they were doing when they were trying to run it. Hey, if we can pop this for five or six yards, we can kick a 50 yard field goal. Costa likely nails it. We get three points right there. Rather than if we throw an incompletion, it's third and 17. Well, we can't kick a 60-yard field goal. Um, now, again, I would let the best player in America play football. Um, but I kind of understand what they're doing. There were times where freeze. It would be like, buddy, what are you even trying here? Um, you know, like we're putting Robert Kimdichi in the Wildcat. Like, what, what are we doing? Um, so, you know, it, it, while I can disagree with some of the things the staff does at times, um, I at least can see the purpose, whereas like there would be situations with Freeze and Rich Rod. It's like I have no idea what they're going for here. Yeah, and to add on to that, too, and this is like <laughs> I'm saying a different version of the same thing, and I was saying a little a few a minute ago, but like these guys are also like human, like in the sense that they're imperfect. And like sure. in any industry, you're going to have bad days at your job. And if you look around the country on a given Saturday, there's other most other coaching staffs have, are going to like have had. Worse days than all oh, this is bad days of coach. I mean, look, AM is had they won that game last night, I would imagine they'd look back at that state game and have been like, what the hell? Like, how did we blow this? Because they'd have a real shot at the West. Whereas that game, their defensive game plan was complete nonsense. I mean, the guy that I had on from AM last week compared it to the whole Bo Pelini, uh, yeah. his opener against State in 20 last year, where it was just like, What what are you well, doing? And then earlier in the year, they stopped on the other side. They got down early against Arkansas when Arkansas really just busted one or two big plays and stopped running the ball when they had success. And then, my God, we can get to the Florida situation in a minute. I figure we bounce around the SEC before we let you get out of here. But what what else do I need to say? You have that going on. So, like, overall, it's relatively minor in terms of their bad days because there's other staffs having worse days, including Auburn, who they lost to. Well, and and I'll say this – like, again, I can disagree with some of the stuff that the staff does and, and I can see what they're doing. I don't think that – I think Lane Kiffin is a very, very smart football coach, even if um, – I think I, I think he does a lot of things that, that help this football team. I don't ever think Ole Miss will be make a coaching decision that loses them the football game. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, I don't I, – I, don't, I think they're going to do what is best possible for this team and that, that – they hope that works out. Um, I think he can make decisions where people don't agree with him. And, you know, he can go in and say, well, this is why we did it. And you're like, well, that makes sense. I don't ever think he's going to do something remarkably stupid um, that costs Ole Miss a football game. 
because I think he's a really smart guy. I don't really get the sense of that for like half the football coaches in, in America too. Like, I think people do a lot of stupid things that cost their team football games each week. Um, and I don't really get the sense. And that's kind of nice. I don't really get the sense that he's going to be the guy that does something remarkably stupid and costs his team a football game. And he's got Ole Miss on the doorstep of a puncher's chance, more than a puncher's chance, at a 10-2 and two season in year two. So I would say yeah. if you had any – if you if you found the negative in something yesterday overall, just from like where your program is at standpoint – you would probably complain about taxes if you won the lottery. So yeah. I, at a certain point, my God, it's just unnecessary pessimism in that sense. But I don't think it was a large faction of people. As I was what, uh, I'll ask you this. If you're setting the line today, what's the line Thanksgiving night? Someone asked me this last night during the game, and we were talking about this. Actually, I think oh, it was before the game. because I was like, I'd like to see how State and Auburn goes today, I think was my answer. It's, is it a – I don't know. I, I I'd go pick them. Oh, I I, I disagree a little bit. I, I got Ole Miss minus four or five. Okay. Um, I think Ole Miss is a for like in in Ole Miss's favor. I think their defense, Ole Miss's defense, is a good matchup for Mississippi State from the Ole Miss side. Like I think Mississippi State will have problems with Ole Miss's defense because I think Sam Williams can he, uh, have pressure. And you know, so I want to say this. So much of this, you know, rush three, drop eight thing against Mississippi State uh, has been a little bit overplayed to me. Like, I don't think you can just muddle rush like teams used to against Johnny Manziel. <clears throat> I don't think you can just do that and, um, you know, rush three, drop eight and, and let him sit back there and then you go go and tackle the receivers after he dumps it off. Like, I think Auburn did that all day yesterday and he ripped him to shreds. Um, so I think you have to rush three, drop eight and get pressure. I think Ole Miss can do that. I think Sam Williams can do that. I think their interior of their defensive line is starting to play really well. Um, I think Ole Miss can get pressure with three, and I think that is going to give them the ability to hold state to 21 to 24 points. I think Ole Miss probably puts up 31 or so. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think Ole Miss, if I'm setting it, is a four, four-and-a-half, five-point favorite. Um now, look, Ole Miss can lose that football game if they go in there and don't play well. Um, I think it's comparable somewhat, and I think Mississippi State's better than Tennessee, um, but I think it's kind of comparable in that sense. I, I think that's the type of game it's going to be. I think Ole Miss is going to have to, to figure, out, figure out a way on defense to win the game, um, and they'll put up 31 to 34, and you hope that's enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the same neighborhood. I, I kind of viewed it as neutral field. There may be five – five, four, five points better than them. And then you subtract, you know, three and a half, whatever you think home field advantage is kind of the typical sure. general Vegas principle. But I, I don't think that's too terribly far off either. And I think Ole Miss, what Ole Miss does defensively is conducive to stopping it because part of it is the fact that, you know, Cedric Williams and the rabbit package or whatever they call it. And Sam Williams have been legitimate pass rushing threats that Ole Miss hadn't had in a while. And Ole Miss has been pretty good, not pretty good for the most part, really good about not allowing gigantic chunk plays um, in the passing game. And I know State, the, it, the not even a misconception, but I know the air raid, they're not throwing it 25, 30 yards downfield and taking shot after shot. But, you know, Ole Miss has almost been conservative a little bit to a fault of just kind of letting the underneath routes kind of develop and then just, you know, I mean, how many times have you seen Ole Miss tackle a guy right after he caught it for like six, seven-yard game, something like that. But with State, they've had a propensity to kind of, you know, pee down their own leg for the lack of a better phrase. If you make them go 14, 15 play drives, that's probably a little bit of exaggeration, but I just think that's conducive to 
kind of how old this plays defense. So I think that I think it's a good matchup for them. And on the flip side, state gives up some plays in the passing game, the, the big explosive chunk plays. And now oh, this yeah. is getting the receiving cores healthy, receiving core healthy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I think if Ole Miss goes into that game relatively healthy, um, you know, you take your three wide receivers over there and your, your running backs get out of next week, healthy offensive line as healthy as possible. I think Ole Miss is going to win the football game. Um, We'll see. I, I almost can certainly get beat over there, but uh, I've seen it happen plenty of times. But I don't know. I, I think it'll. I think it'll be a really good football game. Um, it's kind of look. I'm not going to be this guy that, that's team Mississippi, and I'm glad Mississippi State is winning. Uh, but I am kind of somewhat. Um, I'm glad the Egg Bowl isn't like you know two four and seven teams playing again, like it was or. I guess of 19 state was five and six almost was four and seven, but still you get the point. Like I'm glad something is actually on the line. Um, no, in saying that I'm not going to pretend like I was rooting for Mississippi state on the planes uh, yesterday either. Um, but it is kind of nice that after them, you know, like the, the five-year uh, you know, NCAA investigation, or it felt like five years that, you know, you're playing an egg bowl that actually does mean something again. And it became a clown show that was a poor reflection on both sure. schools. Like it became people's comedic relief at time. Remember, there was a two, three year stretch there between the fights, the NCAA investigation deal, where it was a circus, not in a good way. And now it's potentially, I saw, I, I'd have to go look this up on my own because I'm not, I saw a tweet and I'm not going to take this as fact, but I saw that if, if Arkansas loses to Alabama, which you think would happen, this game yeah. is poten- probably for second in the West. So like it is. it's real expectations instead of, who's going to like hike their leg up or which quarterback's going to come off the bench and punch a safety type of deal. So it's, I think yeah. people anticipate it for um, much, much different reasons, which I think is good for both schools and really just the exposure of the state as a whole, which I don't yeah. buy too much into, but I, I, I get your point. I'm, I'm with you on that. So it kind of had calmed out in 2019 till, you know, Elijah did the dog pee in the end zone, but like 2017 and 2018 was just a brawl waiting to happen. I vividly remember like 2017's pregame. It was just like one big. It was a like, weird vibe. It they hated each other. Like the kids hate, and that's what like usually isn't the case. It's usually just the fans hate each other. No, those kids hated each other at that point. Uh, there was multiple fights and skirmishes pregame, and then uh, AJ has a big day, <laughs> and DK does the dog pee, and that stadium was hostile. And you know that was back when Ole Miss had fans, and they were right, had accused him of being snitches and and all this stuff, and. That was one intense atmosphere for two teams that weren't, you know, overly good. Absolutely. I don't know. It's going to be a fascinating one. Let's bounce around the SEC real quick sure. before we get out of here. Um, just because, I, I don't know, we do this every week. You're, are you a soccer guy? I, 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 so we, Somewhat. So I don't watch soccer, which has made the soccer corner second. You have like a team now, don't you? Yeah, we're, the, we're like Tottenham, or what are we doing? We're the Brentford Bees because Weldon told me that they were, they were bought by – basically sports handicapping sharps and they do big analytics stuff, which I just thought was hilarious. Uh, I don't know how analytics factors in the soccer, but I just found that funny. I thought the bees was a cool name, but I was telling, uh, I was telling sus a minute ago that that Saudi team, the guy that's worth like 300 billion buying Newcastle, we might have to make a switch. I find that hilarious that he's worth like, I don't even know, 12, 13 times than like the most expensive franchises in that league, which are like the most expensive <laughs> sport franchise on earth. So Brentford bees for now. What about you? Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm a Barca fan, but uh, we've okay. been through it the last few years. Well, uh, and, and I will be diving into the uh, other European leagues, probably by like <laughs> fall of 2025. So baby steps. Okay. 
We're getting hey, the EPL hey, if we're gonna do if we're gonna do soccer, we can't we can't not mention that USA beat Mexico on Friday night. Very big win. Probably we, gonna get to go to Qatar next Thanksgiving. That'll be fun. Which is good, right? Because like there's really no excuse for the USA not to be in a World Cup. Like, oh God, no! They'd just be embarrassing, like type of deal. So they're yeah. so that that felt like a real win, right? Like they're they're on the doorstep yeah. of it now. Yeah, they're they're it would take a collapse and some bad luck, which you know 2018 kind of took, but um, you know, so it, they're going to make it. That's three and zero versus Mexico in the year 2021. Can't beat that. That is a that's solid stuff. Oh yeah, go USA. Um, all right, let's look around a couple of these SEC games. Uh, I guess sure. we'll start in the SC, the state Auburn game. Uh, what the hell? I so I was watching the first half of this and pieces of the second half, and then the group I was with, we were eating one, and then kind of started walking towards like a, the tailgate or whatever. And all of a sudden, it's forty three twenty eight, and it was twenty eight to three. Yeah. That's forty in a row. What? Yeah. What in the world? What happened? Just Auburn. I don't, I don't know. What happened? I don't. I, I don't know what else to say. I don't know. I honest to God don't know. Like Rogers didn't play poorly in the first half. Um, and then he played like his hair was on fire in the second half. Like he didn't miss receivers. Uh, Auburn didn't get much pressure and, and state's receivers got open. Uh, apparently Bo Nix is really hurt. That didn't help. Um, so they weren't able to score, but you know, Bo Nix didn't give up 40 points. So, um, yeah, just just state's offense went bozo. I didn't think Derek Mason changed much from the first half when they were having so so much success. They just made some adjustments, and Leach is a really good offensive coach. I don't I don't think there's any doubt about that at this point. Uh, it's a really big win for state, really big win. Um, so they'll they'll win, got them bowl eligible. They'll win next week, so they'll come into the Egg Bowl at seven and four with a chance to go to eight and four and finish second in the West. Weird one for Auburn, and feels like the, I saw a column from one of the local guys there talking. I think he. The premise of the column is that the honeymoon is over, which I think is probably yeah. an apt way to describe it. Because you got to beat the Mississippi schools. Auburn to their, you know, I, I I won't be the guy that says Auburn should never lose to the Mississippi schools because I think that's dumb. But Auburn kind of yeah. made its hay on being good against the Mississippi schools. I know they beat Ole Miss, but like you lose at home to that state team that's good, playing much better. Don't get me wrong, but beatable. That's when it's kind of like they'll turn on you pretty quick. I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah, they'll turn on you real quick at Auburn, especially after you know. Uh, the performance last week against um, Texas a and And look, and I, you know, I know Auburn won the football game, but if I'm an Auburn fan and I see, you know, hey, we beat Ole Miss, well, you know, we beat Ole Miss and then played like crap two weeks in a row, and Ole Miss was really, really banged up that night, we probably don't win that football game if, if Ole Miss is healthy. Um, and, you know, if you hadn't won that football game, we're talking about a real, real dire situation in Auburn at that point. Um, I don't necessarily think Auburn's really good. Like I like I think they're I think their numbers, you know, as our buddy AK says, I think their numbers tell who they are. They're they're a mediocre football team that gonna go six and six, or go seven and five and or eight and four, probably seven and five though. Um and go to the, you know, whatever, uh Liberty Bowl or something. I, I just don't think they're a very good football team. They're bizarre from a number standpoint. Like they don't do anything well at all. And I think they've been opportunistic in a game or two to where I think they, I mean, they could be like a six and 16. I don't think they are per se, but they're, they're right on line with what you're saying from a number standpoint. Cause you know, when they were playing Ole Miss, they were what three and one in the sec and six and two, but you would look at them from a number standpoint. And you're like, well, what in the world? They're literally you know seventh in the conference and everything like this. This, this yeah. doesn't make a ton of sense. So I agree yeah. with Talon. Uh, then we went down to 
I was sitting at uh, this eating, uh, I guess you could call it brunch, lunch, whatever, around 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock, I guess. And um, my girlfriend's dad looked at me and said, wow, Samford up 42-35 on Florida at halftime. And I was like, no, that score ticker sometimes acts pretty well. That didn't make any sense. And then I looked <laughs> on my phone, and it was 42-35 to 35 at halftime. Uh, good God. Um, so I'll say this. If if this is your performance, so so I think both of us agree that Dan Mullen is not a particularly good recruiter. Is that fair? Yeah, and that's come to light a, a sure. billion times this year as so, he's acted like an ass when asked about it. So explain to me how this problem is getting fixed next year. You know what I mean? Like everybody's like, hey, he's probably going to get another year. Okay, but if I'm Florida and he's not going to bring in talent to fix this, well, how is this getting fixed? Right. You know? It's delaying um, the inevitable, is it not? Because, yeah. you know, he, he does the sacrificial lamb. The real sacrificial lamb was actually Hevesy uh, with Grantham because he figured Grantham was probably out. But to your point, yeah. how is this getting turned around? Because even if he was a good recruiter, we've seen the recruiting suffering because the head coach didn't have job security happen to play out a million times. I'm with you. Like, aren't they delaying the inevitable here? This feels like it. Like, I don't even – I wouldn't even be stunned if he went somewhere else outside the SEC and had success. But this just right. feels like a situation that's not getting turned around at all. I just like show me the path, show me the case. I don't get it. He he's not going two and oh, I don't think, against Missouri and Florida State. Florida State is not good, but by God, they try hard. Not they just gave up Florida. 50 to Sanford. That could, could they go 0 and 2? Yeah. Oh God. <laughs> oh God. I mean, like you say you they're probably not going two and oh. Are they going one and one? Are we positive? They're a 10 point favorite in Missouri, but I think I would take the Tigers. Um yeah, I, I just – it feels like – look, Mullen's a pretty good schematical coach, but I think this is where people get confused. Like, there's way more that goes into coaching than being a good schematical coach. Um, you Shout gotta out recruit. Kyle Shanahan. Yeah, you got to recruit. You got to get kids to buy in. You got to get kids to play hard for you. I don't think he's real good at those areas. Those areas matter too. Um, so, you know, he he's not very good in the areas that, that don't involve X's and O's. and when things go poorly from an X's and O's standpoint, well, buddy, you've got a real issue now. Um, yeah, I, if I'm Strickland, I don't know what that buyout is, but I'm tempted to, to just pay it because I don't know how the issue gets fixed. And if I let this joker recruit one more year, whoever I take to inherit this program is going to have a depleted roster. Yeah, I, I think so as well. But, like, I mean, th- as we say that, though, he's – I guess if they go 0-2, it could get so bad. They're like, All right, we got to go ahead and do this. But given the way it played out with the assistant thing, he's getting next year, don't you think? I don't think he like, – I'm with you. I think it's kind of untenable, but it does seem like at least as of now, uh, he's getting next year. I don't know what letting a 3-5 and five Sanford team hang 50-something on you does to that, but it does feel like even though he, they should probably just rip the Band-Aid off now. I, I think he probably needs to win that Florida State game. Yep, I, I, I feel like that's the one where if you don't win that one, you, you, you might get asked to leave. Nothing uh, nothing else overly shocking around the league, right? Uh, South Carolina, look, it's a great story, um, kind of given what they're working with from a roster standpoint. And they get Auburn at home next weekend, but this Without felt like Auburn a missed it. opportunity. I didn't watch any of this game. I see the finals 31-28, to 28, but this felt like a real opportunity to get to that six yeah. men because Auburn and Clemson, is, it'll, it'll be tougher. It'll be tougher, I agree. But, well, it's Auburn without Bo Nix at home. I don't know if – you know, I, I think they can win that football game. You're right. 
it was a missed opportunity. But like, I keep going back to the point that South Carolina is not any good. Um, so they're they, you know, not any good teams lose football games like that. Right. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I think you know. I think I, I'll be honest. I think they win one of the next two. I don't think. Uh, I, I think they get. I don't know if that Clemson game's in Clemson or Columbia, but I think they Columbia play with Clemson. looks like. Okay, I think they. And I don't think they're going to finish up zero two. I think they're going to win one of the next two and um, get to a bowl game. So yes, it's a missed opportunity to go ahead and be six and four, but uh, you know, and clinch bowl eligibility. But I, I, I think they get one of the next two. I think that you know, I think it's a Auburn team that that if Bo Nix is out for an extended period of time, um, is not really good. Um, you know, there's a reason, like, everybody does the T.J. Finley versus Georgia Southern thing. There's a reason they put Bo Nix back in there and left him. Um, so, I think South Carolina winds up getting one to, to get bowl eligible. What a story and what a job by Frank or Shane Beamer that'll be if they do. Uh, yeah, at the halftime of the Florida game, he was, like, stunned they were winning. He was like, man, I'm, I don't have much prepared. I don't do these halftime interviews ahead a lot. Um, that'll probably need to change eventually, as Weldon's pointed out. That shtick won't last forever, but it's a cool story right now because they're doing a great job. That they don't have much, they don't have talent on that team. So, um, Georgia, uh, Tennessee went basically like I thought it would. Georgia, oh, Tennessee no. had DK, some offense to like push them a little bit, but Georgia's just really good. DK just hit a dude in the face. Oh, that's not um, great. No, that's not great. Um, yeah, no, look. Tennessee put up some points in the first half and made it interesting. And then Georgia sat on them. Like, I mean, that, that, that kind of feels like what it was. It, Georgia just sat on them after the game was, was kind of uh, in peril in the first half. Peril is probably not the right word, but you know, Tennessee, I, I guess played them close in the first half. They were never going to win the football game. Um, kind of is what it is. I think Tennessee is one of the better improved, most improved teams in uh, the league and Heupel's done one heck of a job. So, um, but no, they had no prayer at winning that football game. Last one of really any consequence, uh, unless you want to go too deep on uh, uh, in New Mexico State, Alabama. No. I didn't watch any of Arkansas LSU because obviously I was in the same with Ole Miss game. Uh, weird game. Look, I, I'm going completely off ignorance here, but I will say credit to LSU for continuing to show up. I would figure yeah. at a certain point they're going to fold like a cheap tent because they're like, what the hell are we still doing? They haven't quit. They're just incompetent offensively. Yeah, no, like I didn't ever – so there's a lot of faults about Ed Orgeron that you can find. Um, there are. I, his kids have never quit on him. Yeah. Like, even in 07, like his last game at Ole Miss, his kids play hard. Um, look, Ed's got a lot of faults, but his kids are going to play hard. They're going to go beat you all Monroe Saturday. And I'm not 100% shocked if Texas A&M rolls in there and gets beat in Baton Rouge, if they don't do the the one – where they play their tails off for one last night to get Ed another game. Um, I wouldn't be at all shocked if they win that football game against Texas A&M. No, you, they deserve a lot of credit for continuing to fight. Uh, Arkansas didn't play particularly well. <laughs> Excuse me. But they uh, they won the football game. And, and if you're Arkansas, that's really all that matters right now. You got a, you got a game this week against Alabama that's a free shot. Um, and I'm not exactly sure of Arkansas's record if it's six or seven wins. I think it's seven now. Seven and three. Um, but you got a chance against Missouri to get to eight wins, man. And, you know, you talk about the revival of Ole Miss's program. Um, you know, it's one in Arkansas, too. Sam Pittman's done one well of a job. Um, you know, after not many people understood that hire, he is, he's proven a lot of people wrong, including myself. Um, and, you know, the eight and four record for Arkansas, which is what I think they'll likely finish at, is, is one heck of a coaching job. Then I didn't – Kentucky, Vanderbilt, I Kentucky got snap. right in the first half and then just – 
kind of melt, not melted in, but kind of went into a shell a little bit. Cause what that game was up like 34, three and finishes like 34, 17 or something like that. 31, three. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I didn't watch the snap. I, Ole Miss will kill him next week. Vanderbilt needs to either be dismissed from the sec or told, Hey, you have to actually try or something. This is, this is an embarrassment at this point. <laughs> I don't have much to add to that. I, I, I agree. It, it's, it's weird. It's a weird, it's a weird quirk to the sec. Because they're not even doing the Kansas, where occasionally you just dunk on uh, Texas hey, or something look, like that. Yeah, like, you know, like I, I was going to say, you you said there wasn't another SEC game. I was going to mention that uh, there was Texas and Kansas played last night. I don't know if you saw. Yes, they did. And uh, Kansas winning in uh, at Texas and then the smattering of fans that they had start chanting SEC in that stadium is hilarious. That is hilarious. So good on them. That's good stuff. Um, both of the SEC schools coming in lost. Uh, Oklahoma went and lost to Baylor. Look, I don't know what division is going to look like and all that stuff, and that's a conversation for another day. But Texas has a Texas problem. How many coaches are you going to recycle through before you need – I don't get it. It's Sark's first year, so I'd like to see another sure. year of this. But they have a Texas problem, and them coming to the SEC is only going to make the on-field product in even worse. Like, they would finish Ooh. last in the SEC West this year, would they not? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Arkansas it's a weird year to say that because no one sucks, but they would, I think. I mean, LSU and them would probably be a game. That's but, okay. Yeah. I forgot LSU. You're right. That, that um, would be close, though. Yeah. So, speaking of Oklahoma, did you see what Lincoln Raleigh did yesterday? What did he do? He played Spencer Rattler in the second half, some. Like, I feel like you can't bench the kid that you've put in over Rattler for Rattler when he's already essentially said, and his people have already said, he's not staying at Oklahoma. Unless he's hurt, like I don't feel like you can put Rattler in the football game there. That was a wild decision to me. 2019 Rich Rodriguez would beg to differ. I hope Rattler started defying play calls. Well, I mean, is well the the problem with uh the, the difference with 2019 Matt Corral and 2021 Spencer Rattler is that like Matt Corral knew that any logical uh, or anybody that had any logic about them <laughs> would play him over John Rice Blumley. Uh, Rattler probably can't say that. Like, I think they've made the right call to bench him. But, um, wow, that's crazy to think about. Less than two years ago, Matt Corral was probably headed to somewhere in the Pac-12. Uh, I think it's because- important to remember as his career winds down. It's it it's it was malpractice to put it mildly. Um, you know, I, I thought about this during the Auburn game when Ole Miss was out of receivers. Uh, do you know who was after John Rice Plumley the the most experienced wide receiver available? Um, after John Rice and Jacor Pearson, Matt Corral. That's a good point. Because by God, he played wide receiver when <laughs> Rich Rodriguez was here. Remember when we got called stupid for suggesting that John Rice probably shouldn't be the quarterback? We took a lot of heat for that, and now look at it. We don't. I don't get many right, but we were we were on it for that one. Um, and my God, and then Rich Rodriguez beat Hugh Freeze as a thirty-two point underdog this year. What a time! Yeah. Hey, hate to see that. Uh, I wonder how UL Monroe's doing. Uh, I think they've won a couple games. We'll look it up. Let's see. They got beat yesterday by Butch Jones. Always a good thing. They go to Tiger Stadium on uh, Saturday night. That'll be fun. Uh, yeah, thoughts and prayers, but congrats four on the six. Jackson. So they'll be four and seven after Saturday. They're probably going to finish four and eight, which is probably an improvement for UL Monroe. I would say so uh, myself. So, <laughs> Uh, that's probably a perfect way to end the college football pod with the powerhouse. Neil McCready would be incredibly proud. 
we will end it with ULM. Appreciate the time as always, dude. Enjoy catching up and uh, baseball season will be here before you know it. Absolutely. Three months away. How going, dude? All right. That's our show. If you made it to the end, I appreciate it. And we will be back with Weldon on Monday. Hope you enjoyed this Sunday podcast. Hope you guys enjoyed the game this weekend. And I appreciate you listening. Be sure to like and subscribe, rate and review the podcast. Thank you again for for listening. It's been cool to see this thing grow. And we will be back at you on Monday night, really, with Weldon. And then we'll have a normal slate of podcasts throughout the week on Wednesday and Friday as well. So we'll do a bonus pod for the people on Monday and then get back to our normal, regularly scheduled programming. Y'all have a great start to your week, and we'll catch you tomorrow.